Hello and welcome to the third installment of the Survivor Historians podcast. I'm Mario Lanza. And I'm Jay, the bearded hat guy. This is Paul Ass Ass Asslison. <laughs> and we are here dedicating a podcast entirely to what arguably I'm guessing between the three of us might be our favorite season collectively, which is Australia. So I'm warning you guys, we're going to fan tard pretty hard on this one because this is one we've been really looking forward to. A lot of people have written in user questions and uh, we are ready to jump right in. We're going to be talking about nothing but Australia in this episode. And also the fact that Mario has probably played with Paul's childhood at some point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, first off, before we get going, I'd like to thank our uh, our music sample there leading in. That is the uh, it's called the alternative theme to Survivor: The Australian Outback. You can find it on YouTube, and uh, that is a piece of music that I always like to refer to as Jeff Varner eating Doritos because it's played in Episode Six when Jeff Varner is eating Doritos, and it's one of my all-time favorite pieces of Survivor music. How do you pronounce that word? Uh, Doritos. <laughs> Uh, better, better, better. Sorry, I forgot. We, we have a southern market I must cater to, so yeah, they are Doritos. And so um, basically before we get started here, I know in our first podcast we kind of covered seasons one through three in a very vague outline, and uh, I don't think we really gave Australia the attention it needed, so we're basically going to start over here as if we never have spoken about Australia before. So we may cover a couple of the things that we covered before. Um, I apologize, but you know, if, if and, ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. Fantastic. Good I'm, job, I, Colby I, Donaldson. Thank you. <laughs> I had a reader who wrote in and said, please, if nothing else, please use that phrase at some point during the podcast. So there you go. That was for Russ Bartlett. All right. Um, so uh, where do you guys want to jump in? Want to jump in right here to the first episode, Survivor Australian Outback? Yeah, let's talk a little bit maybe about uh, the buildup to Survivor 2, because uh, arguably the biggest buildup to any season ever was, okay, we're going to do this a second time now. Now let's see what's going to happen. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it was amazing that, you know, Survivor, the first season just being as big and such a cultural event like it was, that they actually had the gall to think they could pull it off a second time. And and what I love about Mark Burnett, and he's like, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go bigger. So not only did they take the 50 million, you know, uh, finale for Survivor, they're like, okay, now we're going to follow the Super Bowl and we're going to have them in a plane. It's going to be this giant opening. So I just love all this build up to the first episode. It was easily probably or easily the most heavily anticipated survivor episode of them all i would say i mean it was paired right there with the super bowl actually on the the early show the day after the early show was in uh was in i think it was in tampa bay where they were doing uh the super bowl that year because the early show uh they they did the whole morning newscast from like this big buccaneer ship at the stadium and so when they bring <laughs> deb out to do the interview after the first episode here is deb jane clayson and uh uh, Brian Gumble on this buccaneer ship talking about uh, how great Survivor uh, 2 is. So, what, it, so all, you ha- all you have to do is get voted out first in Survivor. You get to be on that buccaneer ship at Tampa Stadium. God, that's a ripoff. Wow. I was going to say, was Deb with the stepson, or did they have him stashed below decks? Ooh, below decks. Nice. <laughs> Low blow. Yeah, now we'll have more on Deb later. There's a lot of you who don't know what we're talking about. You probably won't want to know what we were talking about later, but for now, we'll, we'll get back to that later. And, and not just that, it's it's the scouting, too. You know, now when a season comes out, I mean, you can, you can view cast bios on uh, CBS.com, and, and they have little little snippets and stuff like that. But, I mean, the bios for the cast, I mean, they, they weren't just online. They, they were in papers and in magazines. I mean, the scouting for this, just, just knowing who's going to be on next season of Survivor was incredible. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I actually still have my copy of Entertainment Weekly from it was like the the spring TV issue from 2001 that and it was all dedicated to Survivor. This is something I always kind of ex- try to explain to people that are just getting into Survivor. Like they would have almost the entire magazine dedicated to Survivor back then. This was such a big deal. Yeah, and like I, I think I've mentioned before, the entire early show, the day after the Survivor Australian Outback finale, was dedicated just to Survivor. That They had no news. I mean, maybe they had like news updates along the bottom, but it was two hours of Survivor, nothing else. That, that was after the Australia finale or the Borneo finale? That, I, mean, I, I didn't watch during the Borneo finale, but oh. I know for sure the Australian mm-hmm. Outback finale i mean that's how big this season is i mean mm-hmm. that's how big it was at the time that that's that's that was the whole early show i mean they, we had a segment talking to uh loved ones of the different contestants talking about the impact that you know it was watching their loved ones on the show and we talked to i mean just anything possible they they talked about for two hours that's funny it's one of the things that i like to always like to bring up is it you didn't watch the the post borneo news coverage but they had a, something similar to that where you know the entire week after survivor was all dedicated to survivor stuff and one thing i always remember this is something that always jumps out at me when i think of survivor history is they had a, a, a feminist literature professor as uh, some psychologist lady on on uh, the early show right after borneo and she came right out and said it is impossible for a woman to win survivor because <laughs> Sexist society is sexist. Human beings are sexist. No male jurors would ever vote for a woman to win. And she flat out came right out and said it. No woman will ever win Survivor. It's just a sexist game. And I always remember that going into Australia, thinking that a lot of people really kind of thought that that no woman could win Survivor. It's a. It, it's really interesting because here we are, twenty-four seasons into Survivor, and what's the male-female ratio? Like thirteen, eleven, or something yeah. ridiculously even. Yeah. Oh, what's something else that amuses me is. Okay, so we're holding up Survivor as the example of why society is sexist and why men will always you know, dominate over women. But, like, if I recall, the guy who won Survivor wasn't the most manly guy in the world. <laughs> so I always kind of think about that. How dare you sully the Rudy Tooty fresh and fruity <laughs> dance, my friend? Yes, I'm sorry. But, yeah, so anyway, that's, this is kind of the attitude of America going into Australia. There was this huge show that everybody watched. Even people that didn't like Survivor watched the finale just to see what would happen. And the perception was, you know, that the bad guys won, that villainy and cheating kind of won out over the good guys, and that, you know, a woman might not ever be able to win Survivor. So this is kind of the perception going into Survivor, along with the, well, how how the hell is this show going to work now that everyone knows how it works? Like, now that you know to get into an alliance... Like, how is this thing even going to work the second time around? So it was really kind of a question mark if they could pull this off again. I mean, and just the fact that they were going to the Australian Outback was such... I mean, we, the show that America knew had only taken place on an island. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I remember even, like, watching something on TV, and they showed this... I remember I can still picture in my mind, it was this little, like, quick video shot of the Kucha camp. I mean, at the time, I didn't know who what camp it was or who it was, mm-hmm. but Michael standing next to the Kucha camp, but even seeing... The way the shelters were created was just like like blowing you know everyone's mind about you know what the terrain was like compared to you know, what we were used to. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing now to think about 
you know, now they repeat locations and, and and stuff like that. I mean, it was just so wild, the fact that they were like, all right, well, we were in the South China Sea for the first season, and now we're going to the middle of the fucking desert <laughs> in Australia. And you're like, that can't be any more different. And, you know, you weren't even thinking in the future, but in a way you were. You were like, well, where are they going to go after this? You know, and it was mm-hmm. just kind of a, a one-upsmanship game that I think happened for a while. Well, and one thing I always remember about the uh, the location of Australia is that there were rumors all over the media that Steve Irwin was going to have a cameo in a bunch of episodes. And I remember this being a big deal. Oh, yeah, Steve Irwin's going to show up. And I'm like, why the hell would Steve Irwin be on Survivor? There's no place for him on that show. He wouldn't make sense in context. But this was kind of the rumor going through all the, the magazines and newspapers that Irwin had like signed a, a four-episode contract to make a cameo. The only thing that would have made that season better. <laughs> exactly. Steve Irwin, does he does he wrestle Mike Scoop into the ground, or what does he do? I, I think uh, Irwin would have jumped on the fire and, and taken it out in a fight. Oh, there's an old buck. I'm going <laughs> to go wrangle him. It's bloody hot. <laughs> yes, okay, so this is, as we're going into Survivor, this is the thing. There's so much momentum for the first season. There's so much to live up to. And I remember also in my Entertainment Weekly issue, uh, it talked all about how how the producers had to constantly tell the players, stop talking about the first season. Stop mentioning BB, stop mentioning Rudy, stop mentioning the alphabet strategy, because this is all they were talking about the first couple days. They just talk about, hey, I'm going to be the next Rudy, or I'm going to be the next Colleen, and the producers had to keep telling them, shut up, you know, that's not going to make the episode. And I said it before in the, in the other one, I was shocked that I didn't hear it as explicitly because that's how, I, how we frame Survivor. We frame Survivor with the, the strategies implemented by the people in Borneo and also by the personalities of the people in Borneo. So it makes sense if someone says, I'm going to play this like Richard or I'm going to be the cook and, you know, blah, 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 like Rudy. And I'm going to, you know, be the nice, friendly person and, uh, you know, the camp mom like Gretchen or something mm-hmm. like that. And they didn't. They no, not nary a... Previous Survivor's name was ever uttered on the actual show, and that really surprised the heck out of me because I was just sitting there thinking they, they got to be doing it. But apparently they were, and the producer said, shut up! Yeah. That's always why I thought if there was a book written by the producers about the second season, I, thought, I think that would probably be the most fun book to read out of all the seasons because there was so much they probably had learned the first time and they had to stop the players from doing the second time. There was probably a lot more going on than we ever saw. Let's see. I think uh, what we should do here is let's kind of start with the first episode. That seems to be naturally kind of where we're going here. So, you know, the first episode, they all fly in on the plane. And that's that is the episode, if I recall, where Jeff is sitting on the back of the plane and it banks real hard. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's the one where he's sitting there. These uh, 16 Americans, blah, blah, blah. And then the bank, the plane banks. It's like, holy shit, Forbes is going to fall. And then we see everyone barfing in their uh, in their bags on the airplane. And I think, was it Deb? Deb is offering someone her barf bag as a because she's a, a real trooper. She's helping out. Well, I don't. I mean, we don't really see it on the plane, but I know Tina Wesson has talked a lot about um, those opening moments of the game there, how, that, how she was already playing the mother ro- role, you know, during uh, that whole plane scene, really trying to help people out and comforting them during the whole uh, everyone's puking scene. Aww. If I do recall, though, if you look real close, you can see that Deb's barf bag is made out of rocks. Out of what, Mario? I don't understand. Sorry, out of rocks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, rock, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and now, wait, what was, what was all the talk about that they originally wanted them to um, skydive in or parachute in? Or what was the – wasn't there some uh, rumor that's how they, how they wanted to open up the second season? 
I've heard that. I've never actually heard a confirmation. I've heard this is the story I've heard more most often that they wanted the players to parachute in just you know trying to up the danger level from the first season. That would really would, kind of would have been a kick-ass opening to the episode. But I heard that some of the players balked at it and didn't want to do it. Uh-huh. Either that or that where the producers didn't just didn't have the resources to film it right or something. And the story I heard is that the lady who really didn't want to para- parachute at all basically wanted out of the cast. She didn't want to be on the show if she had to parachute, so she dropped out. And I think I heard that Tina ended up taking that lady's place. Well, Tina was the last one out to the cast, so, I mean, very likely. Yeah, I know she was an alternate. She wasn't one of the original cast. I bet the person that initially didn't want to do it right away was Nick, because, you know, he's like, <laughs> that's work. I'm not going to do that. Oh, we're fly gonna, me in. This is going to be a Nick bag fest, so that's where we're going with this? Nah, I like Nick. Okay, for you guys listening, this is a this will be a, a fun running joke. But I actually know Nick Brown in real life. I have quite a history with him. He he was friends with my brother at Harvard. They were classmates, and I used to write to Nick all the time. So there will be many Nick jokes made at my expense, and I, I'm a full on Nick supporter here. So just get ready for this. It's out of love, Nick. Maybe. Wait, who <laughs> who are you guys talking about? Nick, come on! Don't you remember Nick Mania in the in summer of 2001? Oh, I'm sorry. I, f- I forgot there was a contestant on the sur- on uh, Survivor <laughs> Two named Nick. You call yourself a Survivor historian, I, and you did not have the Nick, the Halloween costume, and everything, and the little the little fake Nick mask. I guess somehow I forgot about Nick. You don't have the Nick uh, pull string do- doll where you pull the string and it says something like "Once you go dark meat." <laughs> I had the one you pull it and it says "He's burned. He's burned real bad, Terry." <laughs> that would be awesome. Like Survivor season two, like. Like speaking bobblehead, like you know, pull string uh, voice box uh, contestants. That would be good. That would actually be kind of fitting because I always kind of used to say that Elizabeth kind of reminded me of a Muppet. She kind of looked fake, so she would make an excellent bobblehead. <laughs> she would just cry. <laughs> it's an interesting point that I'm thinking of. Uh, Survivor Australian Outback was a very quotable season. You know, sometimes there are movies, maybe they're good, maybe they're bad, but just quotes just come out of them naturally, uh, Caddyshack or something like that. And, you know, Survivor Australia, you know, we just had a lot of, you know, real good one-liners all the way through. Absolutely. You know what's most amazing about that is the person that they thought was going to be the one-liner machine, she only lasted three episodes. That's Mad Dog. (laughs) Which uh, some of my favorite lines from her come from the actual reunion show where she's just kind of uh, shooting them out. Is that the one where Bryant Gumbel calls her fat? Um, well, yeah, he said, Hey, what do you say? He's like, Mad Dog, you're up to your fighting weight or something like that. And she's like, Thanks, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> and then, uh, she, yeah, she talks about it. Had she left it a few more days, she'd be wearing a thong. <laughs> um, she said she had already gone through what, what were they, they were talking about some change. I can't remember what it, what it is. And she, she has to add in that she's already gone through the change of life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of nothing I want to hear about more on TV than Mad Dog Cycles. <laughs> oh, jeez. But yeah, this is something I also like to bring up that, you know, when they were doing all the publicity for Australia on TV and on the news and in magazines, Mad Dog was the person they were really hyping over probably anybody else in the cast. Like, oh, she's going to be the next Rudy. She's a quote machine. She's all crusty. And it's funny that they were, she was the one they thought would kind of rely a lot of the comedy on in the season, but she wasn't around for very long. No, she was the only supporter of uh, of Kel. That was her role in the season. 
Who? I thought his name was Cal. Oh, Cal. Oh, Cal. Sorry, <laughs> Cal. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, uh, my girlfriend uh, recently has I made her start watching Survivor over the past, I think starting in January, she started. And we've gone through 20 seasons. I mean, so we've, mm-hmm. been, uh, we've been cruising. But one of the quotes she always just pulls out of nowhere, the, the, this one stuck out to her was about every time we bring up Tina, she just says, Tina, she is a constellation. Wow. So, That's a great one. Yeah, uh, Maryland, (laughs) still a quote machine. As Jake would say, that sounds almost erotic. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, jump. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead to Thailand. Jumping uh, ahead, about eight podcasts ahead of us. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So anyway, yeah, let's go back to episode one. We're never going to finish if we do this. Okay. One of of my favorite things, if I could say real quick, you know, they 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 they're in the plane, then the plane lands, and we get their their name and their occupation and their fun glamour shot, and hey, that's great. And Colby looks really flipping young, and we get all of this stuff going on, and they have their two crates, Kucha and Ogakor, and there's a little note telling them that you know, grab your crap because you've got a five mile hike, and there's this little like tiny hatchet that's that's attached to it. And the first thing that I remember somehow is like they run to their crates and there is Mike Scoopin who immediately takes the, ha- the, the hatchet and just starts hacking at the box. <laughs> and if there was not a clue for what we were going to see for the next few episodes, it was right there. Well, Mike being crazy. Well, what I love too is that the fact that both tribes find like, the, like one of the most essential pieces of equipment we have to get back to the camp is the lid to this crate. Like no matter how we're going to get this, Elizabeth has to carry it on her head for five hours, but we're going to get that lid back to camp. That lid was really awkward. <laughs> well, hey, awkward? Remember, yeah, you remember that led into Elizabeth's first confessional? Do you remember? It was uh, they panned to her and she's like, you know what the problem with society is? It's all the poor and the Jews. Remember that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> yet. Not yeah, yet. I haven't said it yet, but... <laughs> we'll talk about Elizabeth later. Yes, we have lots to say about Elizabeth. <clears throat> Little Bessie, or Liz, as some like to call her. God, that makes <clears throat> yeah, me sick to hear Liz. <laughs> well, there was your element. I actually did like the, the hike in. I mean, it was instead of Borneo, where they just kind of land and, you know... Huh? They're figuring it out. It's, it's, it's let's, let's separate everything out with a hike. And we have, you know, Keith running ahead and... Mm-hmm. You know, Nick not knowing how to do a compass and everyone making fun of Nick. Oh, Nick, I'm sorry. Now, hold on. I've heard Mario say in the past that this is one of the flaws with uh, the earlier seasons of Survivor is that we spend so much time on these hikes. Care to defend that, Mario? When did I say? I've never said that. Yes, you did. Because in my uh, uh, second season of Survivor that I created, Uh there is a... um, uh, a segment where people are walking to camp, and and uh, you talked about how how in uh, Survivor Australia and Survivor Africa, it's a momentum killer to have uh, um, you get the whole game going, then you jump off the plane, and then we have to sit there and watch ten minutes of them just walking. Paul, you ignorant slut! <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, the things you say. The things you say, Mario, are always ingrained in my. I mean, a lot of people I forget what they say, but not what Mario says. What Mario says is the truth. If I if I said that then, I must have felt it then, but I don't believe that anymore because this is all character development. You kind of see uh-huh. how they interact with interact with one another. So apparently I was a fucking idiot back May, then. Well, maybe it was more <laughs> just kind of attack on my show and you just wanted some like make it sound more valid just to say that my show sucked, so Yeah, I think more than likely what happens is that your show was just a piece of shit. <laughs> I mean I mean Could I mean be. that in the nicest way. <laughs> no, I, I don't know why I said that. I was probably a comment on on how your show was kind of a momentum killer without all the music and all the effects and stuff. <clears throat> I'll let this know. one slide. 
All right, thank you. We'll let Montana win this one. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, it was that. I, I, I will tell a little funny story here that, you know, like I said, I kind of knew Nick Brown before the season. He was friends with my brother. He'd exchanged emails. I'd written to him before the first episode even aired, and I'm like, hey, like, I'm a huge fan of Survivor. Um, can I interview you when the season's over? You know, I've never really seen a Survivor interview because they didn't really do these back then. He's like, oh, yeah, cool. And I'm, when my time on the show is done, you know, you can talk to me. That's cool. So the first episode starts, and I'm all excited because I have some, something invested in one of the players this time. And sure enough, what's the first thing we see that first episode? Nick, the guy that can't read the compass, and everyone's pissed at him. And my, my heart just dropped. I'm like, holy shit, I made friends with the guy who's gone the first episode. This is the worst luck ever. And like the whole first episode, I remember watching in dread because all the signs were there that Nick was going to be first. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that he didn't do well on that first hike, uh, no doubt. A lot of people didn't do very well on that hike. And you know, we got our first uh, little cameo from the greatest Survivor player ever with the "I'm very tired. This rice is very heavy." <laughs> yes, and the rocks. Don't forget the rocks quote. The rocks is good. That's I like right. the I like the end of those because you know, there's a hike in and they hike in later in Africa and I'm jumping ahead and I know that. But uh, you, you, what's fun is that I believe Kimmy gives the confessional. It's once they get to their camp, you know, and they talk about seeing the flag for the first time and getting there. And Kimmy uh -huh. was talking about all the, the interview process, the this, the that. And then you get on the flights from L.A. and then you get the flight over here and the connecting and then you get to Australia. And then you take a couple more flights. And she just talks about the accomplishment of just being getting into the game and getting into that flag. And I like that, you know, kind of little bit of a. Uh, clarity there. You know, I agree. That was kind of cool how she kind of she kind of breaks the wall there and talks about the process, not just the game itself. That was actually kind of neat. I forgot about that. <laughs> and then she ends by saying, "Can I masturbate now?" <laughs> now? Now? No, not now. No. Wait, when? When can? <laughs> just just level with me. When? Half yeah. an hour from now? I had one reader write in. I asked, uh, "Are there anything subjects we should talk about on the Australia podcast?" And he said. Uh, I want to hear you talk about Kimmy always wanting to talk about masturbation in the shelter because that's not a topic we would hear in normal in modern Survivor seasons. What are your thoughts on that? I'm like, I don't really have any thoughts on that, but that's a good point, I guess. I mean, it really. I mean, some of you know, I think maybe more so in Borneo, and then it just kind of you know wanes off from there. But I mean, there was some racy stuff in those earlier seasons that they you know covered. I mean, jumping ahead again, you know, you have Lindsay talking about in Africa about uh, how she has cramps and just started her period and where are the tampons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was more like a little little raw. -er. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It was more like we're just filming people talking what they would normally talk about and this is, happens to be what Kimmy talks about. And all Kimmy talks about. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Kimmy was a fun game. You know, I never really liked Kimmy at the time. I found her quite annoying, but in retrospect when you watch Australia now, and she was actually kind of a fun character. I, I actually like her quite you a know, bit. It's really hard to describe Kimmy. You know, nothing is taboo with her. Nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, in the, one of the best confessionals, and this is a person that I believe uh, the test of time has really done well with uh, in Survivor, and that's Jeff Varner. Mm -hmm. And he has just an incredible uh, confessional in that first episode when he's talking about how he's annoyed by Kimmy. Kimmy will not shut up. I just wanted to go over there and shake the shit out of her. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love Varner. Yeah, Varner was one of those guys kind of forgotten in the annals of Survivor, but he was, you know, was a big star for his time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so we finished episode one. We got, you know, Deb tried to valiantly build her shelter out of racks. Um, of course, wait, wait. It, sorry. Real quick, not only just on the shelter of Deb and Rocks, but let's also talk about Ugacore's shelter here. Oh, yeah, with Colby's flag. 
Yeah, like, like, yeah, you know, the production thoroughly searches their bag. Oh, do they? <laughs> yeah, this is funny. Um, I don't think a lot of younger viewers know this. You don't get why people like Colby, but like, the first ep, the first, uh, you know, in in the the like Jay said, the production goes through their bags. They won't let them bring any survival items, anything that's banned, but they let them bring luxury items. Somehow, Colby slips a luxury item, which is a Texas State flag that is big enough to be used as the shelter top. I'm like, how did that get past production? With built-in grommets and stuff, so <laughs> that they know. could anchor it. Yeah, I well, know. Yeah, Colby tells the story on the uh, one of the special. Uh, features on the DVD for the Australian Outback and he was saying he called ahead uh, because you get to pick your five options for luxury items and he calls ahead to the place or whoever he called production whatever to see if you know bringing a Texan flag would be a legitimate option because he doesn't want to waste it if, that w- if they wouldn't consider it and they go okay let, let us get back to you and they said okay approved you got it like they, <laughs> they approved it before they even like saw it so that's when he went out and got the you know it all uh, survivored up that's funny. That's that's got to be one of my favorite things that's ever happened, kind of behind the scenes on Survivor. That Colby slips a flag past the censors. <laughs> well, what I uh, what I love about Australia too, if you just think about how many shelters that season had over the course of it, because okay, you have the original one they make at at uh, Ogacore, which if you really look during those first couple episodes, is pretty pathetic the way they make it. They have these huge like tarps why they have to have the flag over them it just looks ridiculous they have like two walls of green tarp up a green tarp that they're lying on and then a texan like flag over the top (laughs) and then they eventually go and they make like more of like the traditional like a-frame uh style of uh of shelter kucha has their shelter then they make the big one at the um the merge where they make kind of a big you know uh tent then they have to give up those um tarps when they uh when they trade in for rice which i'm sure we'll get to that so Uh then they have to make this other little rink-a-dink shelter we're on the sixth one right now if you have any counting (laughs) under the kind of the bush in the riverbed then the riverbed comes by washes them off and they have to go make their seventh shelter up in the hills wow so this is you know gotta make a shelter man (laughs) well that's the thing you watch australia you learn how to build a shelter because you saw it so many times and then the one you left out was the one at the start that deb made out of rocks (laughs) oh i forgot the eighth (laughs) shelter the eighth shelter the rock shelter yeah the one that collapsed in three seconds and killed everybody (laughs) so yes poor deb the first boot of survivor the australian outback just absolutely hammered you know to this day, I'm not entirely sure why she was voted out. I mean, they kind of hinted at it in the episode, but it never was flat out said if she was a schemer, if she was a liar, if she just didn't really get along with people. And you look at her final words, and she had no clue whatsoever why she was voted off. What do you guys think about why she was actually voted off? I think she just didn't mesh with the group. And think so? I mean, I think just with someone just on the outside like that, it's just, it's an, you know, there wasn't someone who blew the challenge. There wasn't a Sonia who tripped. There wasn't a yeah. Diane who passed out. And when it comes down to it, it's, I mean, if you're not like clicking with someone, I mean, and the fact that she didn't even get that just kind of, you know, is almost a testament to how maybe she's not the most socially, uh, mm-hmm. you know, adapt player. That hike in, the hike in is, 
you know, it may, it may be a, a mood and a momentum killer for an episode, but you know, the, I believe that's a, that's an incredible bonding moment at the time. And, you know, Deb was ordering people around and sometimes you're there and you're hot and you're stressed and you're trying to find your camp. And, you know, may, maybe someone yelling in your ear isn't exactly what you want at the, at, at the time. Uh, I'm reminded, I, I believe it was Rudy said it on some commentary in some season. He said, you know, in those first votes, you don't even necessarily need a reason. Someone just says a name and you're like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree, Deb didn't really mesh well, and someone just probably went Deb. And everyone went, okay, that's fine. I love that Rudy is providing insight into something. <laughs> well, you know, he, he also told us that Richard was the queer. So <laughs> yeah. without him doing that, we may never have known. <laughs> you know, every other Rudy interview I've heard, his answer to every question is, get off my lawn! I didn't know he turned into Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah. No, he was Clint first. <laughs> nice. I'm not sure if Rudy's friends with the Hamong, though. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> That's right. We're going to uh, Gran Torino now. So anyway, um, would you say Deb is still among the, mo- the five most saddest boot of the saddest boots ever? I'm curious. I mean, part of it, like, has wor- like, worn off over time. The fact that, that you know, I mean, she got voted off what, at the end of the year 2000. We watched it at the beginning of 2001. So, I mean, it's kind of like... You know Deb gets out first, but I mean, if you really watch it and watch this poor woman who has no idea why people don't like her, why they voted her off, and then you just know the backstory of all the crap in her personal life and how the media pretty much tore her apart, to use Mm -hmm. her words, I mean, it's kind of a sad story for Deb Eaton. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Everything, it's it's a sad boot. I mean, when you you look at the episode, even then... You know, we're 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 following the story of what they're showing us on the screen. They're showing Deb not really fit in, and they're showing Deb, you know, order people around. So the fact that they were like, "Well, we don't really want her around," you can kind of understand it. But you know, it was kind of a weird, nonsensical boot. You thought maybe someone else would go, and then just when all the stories came out, I mean, you know, with as big as with as big as Survivor is, and what we're trying to tell you, Survivor was flipping huge in American society then, and all that stuff came out. That was just a, a tsunami of crap going Deb's way. Yeah, one thing I always think of when I think of Deb is that, you know, I when I wrote The Funny 115, she was one of the people I don't like making fun of, not even the, like minor cracks about, because I think she's kind of been through enough. But you think about it, it's, it's just horrible. Like, all these people, everyone in America watched Survivor. Millions of people watched it. Everybody who was on the first season became a celebrity. They all became beloved. They all became huge stars. And then everyone goes into the second season thinking it'll be the same thing. Oh, we're all going to be celebrities. We're all going to be TV stars. And Deb just gets absolutely blindsided that first episode. She has no clue what happened. She's embarrassed on national TV, and she realizes there's a downside to Survivor that I don't think a lot of people really saw after that first step season. That like there's some potential for some really nasty stuff to happen to people's lives, and one of them is being embarrassed on TV. And then the second one for Deb, which she, you know, she comes home and everyone finds out. Oh, she's technically what was it married to her stepson. It's like, man, they just came down on her, and I'm like, that just absolutely ruined her life. And I, I always feel bad when I watch the first episode of Australia. Which um, I don't know if anyone out there who keeps up with uh, the interviews that Rob Sestino does, but Jeff Varner actually came on his uh, podcast this past season and and made some comment about how Deb actually now it was it was a bitter breakup with her and her. Um, s- uh, stepson, who she's married, uh-huh. so now she's no longer with the stepson anymore. <laughs> Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah, I don't. I don't really know all the details. I kind of heard about this. Like, Deb was married to a guy, and did he die? Was that the deal? Her husband died. I think. I think so. Yeah, and then she grew close to his son, stepson, who was not someone that she had ever raised or right. really didn't know that well. So, 
it wasn't like she was marrying someone she had raised. It just happened to be the guy's stepson, and it, it kind of got misreported in the newspapers, and she just got absolutely destroyed in the media. And if you watch that first, the Australia reunion show, you can just see how hurt and anguish she is over the whole thing. And it's, I find that really hard to watch because that was the really first time in Survivor that happened to somebody. That's really when it, it hits you, that reunion, where she just is... I can't even explain it. It's almost catatonic, uh-huh. you know, uh, inside. It's 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 really really difficult to watch. And I'll tell you a story that I, I a lot of people know. I used to write these Survivor stories, and one of them I wrote was uh, Gree All Star Survivor Greece. And I had Deb on a character as a character on there. And you know, all I'm thinking the whole first episode is I have to write this in a way that she doesn't get voted out early, especially first, because like I couldn't do that to her even in a story. This is how badly she took, you know, Australian Outback. So. It was funny, like, I, I wrote it so she actually did pretty well in the game. And I actually had other survivors write me and thank me for not voting her out first. That's how much it meant to them not to see her get voted out first again. So, like, this was a big deal to her. And I guess apparently that's all we have to say about Deb. <laughs> Deb doubt. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Deb is a kind of a Debbie Downer because once you get going on that subject, there's nowhere to go from there. There's no transition. Yeah, speaking of uh, having your life destroyed... <laughs> So anyway, we'll just we'll just move on to episode two, unless you guys have anything more to say about episode one here. Well, episode one, um, I think we got a confessional from fifteen of the sixteen contestants. Ah, yes, yeah. This is something we're going to talk about more later. That the producers very specifically showed everyone in the first episode except for who's that one person? Tina. Tina, correct. If you guys watch Australia, lots of old school fans will know this, but newer fans might not know this. Tina is the only person who does not get a confessional or an interview in the first episode, and that was almost definitely deliberate. And there's a whole theory we're going to talk about later called the dog that didn't bark that that some smart people on the Internet kind of picked up that pegged Tina as the winner from the very first episode just because they specifically did not show her that first episode. It was really interesting if you go back and watch it now. She didn't get a confessional, and on the hike in... Um, everyone gets uh, like specifically just the hike version, not anywhere else. Uh, someone is prominently featured. 15 of the 16 survivors are prominently featured in one shot or another, except for Tina Wesson. Yep. In fact, you know what the first thing we ever see of Tina is? I will, I will bring my nerd them to new heights here. There's a shot in episode two, I think where she's like running and they focus on her chest. So the first thing you ever see of Tina is her fake breast bouncing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So those are for the uh, stalkers playing along at home. I also want to mention uh, two things. Um, you know, th- the whole tribal council sequence for Australian Epic. First of all, them walking all over the rocks as they're, you know, making their way to tribal council. It's like this, it, it looks like this epic hike, and that's fun. Mm-hmm. And then they end up with the, I mean, is there ever, has, is there a better tribal council set and, and location than that waterfall thing? Absolutely not it's yet. Pretty freaking awesome. They, there was so much love put into making season two look epic, and that the tribal council set—that's the biggest one I think of them all. The music was big, the cast, the hype was big, but that tribal council at the top of the waterfall was about the coolest thing I've ever seen on Survivor. It's a, it's an incredible scene, and we talked a little bit in the Borneo podcast about growing pains with the producers and things like that. It's again more growing pains and just getting everyone in there. Jeff is a flight attendant in that first tribal council. Like right after he gives them all their softball tribal council questions, he then stands up and says something along, "Oh God, I, I wish I knew the whole thing." But he's just saying like, "All right, this is what you're gonna do. I'm gonna stand you one one by one. You're gonna walk down this path over here, and you're gonna go over into the voting booth. You're gonna write <laughs> down the name of the person. You're gonna speak your piece. You're gonna say whether you want." 
wanted to vote them out or not. You're going to fold it up once, put it into the thing, then walk down, down this path. And then when you are eliminated, you're going to walk down this path over here in case of a water landing. <laughs> Is he holding the seatbelt above his head the whole time and showing them how to fasten the seatbelt? Where, yes, where you can find a confessional where you can speak freely about your time here on Survivor. <laughs> Aw, that's cute. And Elizabeth can go in there with a little homemade headdress. <clears throat> By the way, any thoughts on Elizabeth's headdress? I know this is Paul will probably have some thoughts on this one. I remember being very captivated by it, very interested <laughs> in what this thing was. And for the longest time, I didn't know why it disappeared after you know the final eight uh, tribal council. When Jerry goes home, I wondered, you know, was it because once Elizabeth got a vote, she's pissed off and said, "Well, f you, headdress, you really kept the votes away." What was it? Uh, come to find out that she, when Colby had to give up his. Um, Texan flag when they when they exchange it for rice, she runs after Jeff and gives away her headdress too, so she can sacrifice like Jesus did. Aww, <laughs> you know, you guys know the story behind that headdress. I'm not sure if you guys know this. I've I've heard it, but refresh my memory. Apparently, Elizabeth was a huge fan of uh, Survivor in college. I think during the first season, Borneo. And every, every during every episode, she had this this homemade headdress she wore. It was like her ritual. Her like little Rain Man thing that when Survivor was on, she had to wear the headdress. And so she made it and she wore it. And it was just this cheesy little thing that only someone like Elizabeth would come up with. And so when she came out to Australia, got cast, she's like, well, I want to bring that as my luxury item. So they let her bring her homemade good luck thing that she used to watch. She used to wear during the actual episode so her favorites wouldn't get voted out. That's when you can tell you're doing well in life and don't really have a lot of problems. When you're like, oh, my God, Survivor's on and I don't have my headdress. <laughs> Well, she was manufacturing shoes or something back then. I don't know what else she was doing. <laughs> Dating Tim Hasselbeck. <laughs> yes. All right, so any more thoughts on the first episode? We spent almost a, a, a whole hour on one episode. This bodes well for the length of this podcast. Well, let, let's speed it up. You know, the first episode <laughs> is a lot of exposition and whatnot, so I, I'm going to defend it that way. A lot of walking to tribal council, momentum killer, stuff like that. Walking to oh, the yeah. camp, yeah. All <laughs> right, episodes 2 through 13, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tina won. It was awesome. <laughs> All right, let's 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 uh, let's just do two instead. I think that's probably the natural progression here. Episode two, which many people will know as a the Kel with beef jerky, or b the Cal with beef jerky, or c the episode where Jerry became the most hated person in America. Oh my God! Seriously, and also the first. Oh my God! Oh, that was the for second episode. She didn't drop one in the first. Uh, maybe she did, but I'm know. thinking. I'm thinking of when, uh, you know, part part of what made Jerry so hated was the uh, was the rice cooking in Ogakor and the fact that <laughs> Keith didn't do it very well, and you know there was sniping going on, and then Jerry made the the tortillas out of the uh, the flour that they had in there. <laughs> yeah. They got flour. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. That's cool. Yeah. By the way, what was the deal with Keith not cooking rice? This was this was something that everybody loved to joke about back in the day in 2001. This was like the funniest thing people could joke about when they talked about Survivor. Like they have a cook who can't cook rice. Ha ha ha. Like what was the deal with that? Is it just he wasn't using the high altitude directions or something? I mean, gourmet chef or not, I mean, I feel like you're the tools you have to cook what you're used to are not the same out and you know when you're on this. On the river in uh, in Australia, so I mean, was he going to come up with like gourmet rice, like some rice pilaf with some meat? I mean, what was he supposed to do with the damn rice? I don't know. He just I mean, he needed some sort of a rice steamer. And I know I've cooked rice myself, and it's it's a tough thing to get right. So I will defend Keith, and possibly they did not did not have the most uh, up to date rice steaming tools possible out there. 
Isn't rice a lot of, you know, just putting it in the, the hot water and letting it sit? Well, yeah, but he's Keith. You know, he has to add all the right seasons. He has to get the right service vessels. There's more than that. Come on, Jay. Maybe he was making risotto. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was risotto. You had Gordon Ramsay yelling at him from behind the scenes. <laughs> you donkey! <laughs> yeah, shut it down! Bloody hell! Yeah, but that that was one of the running subplots in uh, Australia. I mean, all over the internet at the time that, that the cook couldn't cook rice, which... It's a minor subplot now. No one would even think twice when they think about Australia as that being a major plot point. But that was a big deal at the time. It was. It, the, the whole food thing, it, the episode two was very food heavy, you know, because we had the, the fight with Keith and Jerry and the tortillas and Amber eating the tortilla going, oh, my God, <laughs> and all of that sort of stuff. But then you have, you know, you have Cal, a Cal, trying Cal. to catch a fish. And, boy, <laughs> he just could not fish a rubber ducky out of that bathtub, could he? I love that. You know, someone was – let me see if I can find it. Someone sent in a, a bunch of user questions. And then someone wanted to talk about all of Colby's quotes, saying Colby's the most underrated quote machine ever because he says these ridiculous things and they're just perfect because they're so Colby. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and then they do that, you know, fun producer irony afterwards because Kel, Kel's trying so hard to catch fish and he's got that horrible twine and, you know, we're just getting the, the fun thing goes and, and all the rest of the Ogacores are in that lagoon just having fun and splashing around. And I think Mitchell says, well, I don't, there's no fish in this thing. And then the camera immediately pans yeah. to the fish. It's overfished. <laughs> there's no fish in here. <clears throat> By the way, I found the quote I wanted to say. This is from a reader named Lee Bartlett who said, talk about the scene where they hunt grasshoppers and Colby says, we will teach young grasshopper to catch grasshopper. Because Colby says ridiculous things all the time, and it's just perfect. And that's that's a great description of Colby. He's so underrated because he's just – the way he talks is just funny. I don't know if he's always trying to be funny or it just comes off funny, but he's just funny. He has one-liners. Um, you, you know, and one-liners are awesome. They, they have a great use. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are some people, I think, like uh, Rob Mariano later and Rob Sesternino, where, you know, they are playing a character and, you know, they can take something that isn't in inherently funny itself and just make it sound funny with tone or with facial expressions uh -huh. and just kind of keep the thing going. But Colby had lines. He'd go up there and he'd say a line and he'd kind of smirk or smile at the camera with those humongously white teeth. Mm -hmm. And you'd just go, that's funny. Yeah. Get these goons out of here. Bring on Kucha. <laughs> I love Colby. You know, Colby gets a lot of crap nowadays, and I will never say a bad thing about Colby because I love that. He was so funny and so awesome in Australia. And yeah, I just, I mean, he was this, always this, just the symbol of kind of what Survivor was. So I, I, can, I can forgive anything he did later just because he was so good in Australia. Well, I wouldn't say anything bad about Colby because apparently he, you know, hey, I was friends with guns now. <laughs> All right, so episode two, the beef jerky slash Jerry becomes a villain turn. I'm sure we have plenty to say about this. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so, so yeah, if anyone who's not familiar with uh, the history of Survivor, here's how it go. goes. Survivor 1, awesome. Survivor 2, oh, my God, who's that bitch that accused the guy of having beef jerky? I hate her. Let's kill her. So, anyway, that's America's reaction to Survivor 2. Yeah, it's just amazing to go, I mean, just to... Like, know how much Jerry was hated and just go back and watch the evolution of it, which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, I'm, granted, we, we have this perspective, like, now to look back and be like, okay, yeah, Kel did have beef jerky. It was confirmed by everyone. Uh -huh. But, I mean, still, to, like, I mean, just America, like, they were not used to reality TV. They were not used to people, like, America rooting for villains or liking that kind of person. Mm -hmm. I mean, they watched this, like, like you know, woman who probably would be someone that would be annoying in your real life because she's a mm -hmm. little arrogant, a little mm -hmm. know-it-all know a little bit, and America latched onto that, and they hated her. 
They really did. And it's like, like people think that Colton got hate. Like, yeah, Colton had people writing on his Facebook wall telling him to die, which is, you know, there's always idiots that are going to do something like that. But, like, man, the level of, like, I heard stories about people would come up to Jerry and ask for an autograph, and then right after she'd sign something, they'd rip it up in her face and spit on her. I'm like, are you kidding me? And, like, it was ridiculous how much hate she got. She got so much hate. And, again, we've talked about it. For, for for a while now she she didn't do too much no uh, you know she accused she correctly accused someone of smuggling food and then they didn't like it because she didn't like the way that keith prepared the rice and it was confirmed by even tina of all people that the rice wasn't all that great mm-hmm. and then she went and made tortillas for the tribe which everyone seemed to enjoy so yeah. it's like what, what a bitch, bitch. <laughs> made tortillas for the tribe yeah, it's funny. I had so many people write in before this podcast and say, talk about Jerry and why it was something different to be a villain back then and how she really isn't that bad. And like you could do an entire podcast on this, like because she wasn't a villain. All she was was someone who was maybe a little annoyed and annoying and a little entitled, but hardly a villain. Like she's just like a little gnat you could swat off because she's annoying. But yeah, the audience just did not respond to her well at all. And I kind of think the producers kind of milked it a little in the editing too, made her look worse than she probably oh, yeah. was. And yeah, she just got shit on. It was horrible. And by the way, <clears throat> we said in the last podcast that Kel definitely had beef jerky, or at least many people have confirmed it. I got a lot of people very upset that we confirmed it like that, saying, "Well, no, it's never been proven one way or another." So it it's, it, har- it 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 warms my heart to hear you guys talking so openly about, "Oh yes, Kel had beef jerky," because I believe this too, and I know it's been confirmed before. Yeah, I mean, every, everyone in that cast will tell you that he had beef jerky. Or something. Or Yeah, I mean, they were, uh, I was listening to kind of an interview between uh, uh, Jerry Manthe and Mitchell Olson, actually. She, uh, Jerry's been hosting um, a video podcast on the RTV zone, and she's been trying to bring back, um, you know, some of her old school Survivor friends. And she's had Mitchell Olson a few times, which has just been fascinating, talking about, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day in Australia. And they were even talking about what kind of beef jerky it was. Like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what kind it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that, that's how sure of it they are. It was Apache brand. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that was the thing. Like, I don't think, unfortunately, yeah, the 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 stories about Kel actually having beef jerky are out there. They just never got the publicity about the stories that he didn't have beef jerky. So, there's a lot of people that still think that's kind of the up in the air, which I don't think it is at this point. No, I don't think so. I, I don't. I really don't. And I think anyone that's trying to hold on to, well, Kel didn't have it because we ultimately didn't see it and he's still sticking to his story. Well, what's he going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is he going to come out and go, you know, I really did. You know, I've seen lots of interviews with Jerry since from Australia, from other seasons. She she mostly tells the truth. She's not the type of person I think that's going to be start making crap up. You know, I never was able to appreciate Jerry until actually when she was voted off on Survivor All Stars. Uh-huh. And when she was gone, I just, yeah, I mean, I have a soft spot, soft spot in my heart for Jerry. I mean, just what she brought to Survivor. And, and even if you, you know, aren't the biggest fan of her, you have to respect, you know, how, you know, what a, a huge figure she was in the, you know, in, in Survivor history. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, I, it's funny. I've written to a lot of Survivors over the years. I kind of met a lot. And Jerry is right there at the top of the list for someone who I, I kind of regret I've never had any contact with because I'd like to thank her for all she brought to Survivor because I don't know if people really have credited her enough for how much she brought. No, I think uh, it's tough to play the whole Mount Rushmore game. Like, what four people would you put on there? I mean, I'd probably put, uh, you know, 
more Borneo heavy and stuff like that. But I mean, I, if you're electing a pantheon of survivor characters, I think Jerry has got to be in your first wave. Yeah. Well, you guys know, of course, no, no mime or Mount Rushmore. It'd be Russell, Russell, Russell and Russell. Hey, that's mine. <laughs> now, yours is Amanda, 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 Russell. Oh, yeah, right. But yeah, no, I agree. Jerry Your was... Mount Rushmore just got blind. Oh, wait. Excited. I want some room for Linda Spencer in there. <laughs> you don't know who you chiseling. <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Jerry absolutely should be up there. She was one of the first picks for Survivor All-Stars. I mean, yeah, she was as big as just about anybody ever in Survivor. Maybe not for the right reasons, but she was just as big as anybody. I mean, she was, the, she was on the original cast of The Surreal Life. I mean, she was up there with... I don't know who she was on that season with, but I mean, like... I mean, pretty big celebrities who were, you know, were really big at one time. I mean, she was up there with them, Jerry Manthe from Survivor. Very true. And I always say, the first time I went to a Survivor event, I said hi to just about every Survivor except Jerry because I was scared of her. <laughs> a lot has changed over the years, but this is, this is the thing. At, for, at the time, you see her at an event, I'm like, I really don't want to go talk to Jerry because I'm afraid she'll yell at me. <laughs> Yeah, and really, ultimately, I think what, what happens is she was the victim, and she was a very independent woman, and she was just not going to take anyone's crap. And she just went out there, and you know Keith cooked bad rice, and she just said, you know what, this, is, this sucks. I know you're a chef, but that sucks. Let's mm-hmm. do better. And she made tortillas, and, and I think that just rubbed everyone the wrong way. And what made Jerry a villain, ultimately, and what confirms it, is that you go back and you watch the season, and no one really has a nice thing to say about her ever. Yeah. And, you know, so, so to sit here and say, well, she really was nice and was just misunderstood, it's tough because everybody hated her yeah. out there. So, you know, you knew that she rubbed people the wrong way. But it's really funny, and especially when you look at heroes versus villains, and you've got Russell and Parvati and, and Danielle running around ruling the roost, and they've got Jerry with her, and Jerry is so mild compared to those other people. Yeah. You know, she's, she's actually kind of like a very, quote-unquote, heroic figure in a lot of ways. And you're like, really, Jerry? You know, rewatching uh, Heroes versus Villains recently, I mean, Jerry's kind of almost like the sweetheart of that season. I mean, <laughs> definitely get down to the verge. She's kind of like... <laughs> I mean, they, they vote her off because they think she, you know, is too likable to win in the end. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, wasn't her final word something like, "Darn it, I almost had it this time," and you're kind of rooting for her. It's just weird how much of a flip flop she's kind of had over the years. Yep. But again, you made a good point, Jay, that we're not saying that Jerry was the hero of Australia by any stretch of the imagination, but she's no worse than just someone who was young and kind of annoying and entitled. And I mean, that's hardly yep. a villain. That's everyone on Survivor half the time. No, but she really got the treatment for it. And uh, speaking of u- uber villains or not, let's talk about Mike Scoopin. <laughs> Mike Scoopin. Oh, you know, Mike is one of those guys who I don't think has ever gotten enough love in the Survivor world. Just because when people think of him, they just think of, oh, he's the guy that fell in the fire. I'm like, dude, that guy was one of the best players or characters ever before he fell in the fire. People, So many people forget about that. What a psycho nut job he was. And I mean that in the greatest possible way. If you couldn't figure out how cool he was, here's the whole thing about Kel not being able to fish a rubber ducky out of a bathtub. And we immediately smash cut over to Kucha, and there's Mike Scoopin just dragging fish into the boat <laughs> and bringing it back to the camp. Like, how badass is this guy? Well, remember he's, just- he's, he should. He is a student of nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. Just to drag the point home that he was better than Kel, not only did he catch the fish, then they showed him going home and fishing a rubber ducky out of a bathtub. It was the double whammy. Blindside, cow. <laughs> but yeah, uh, someone wrote in. I'm trying to remember what the email was, but they said something like, uh, "You got to talk about Mike Scoop and like, because he's everything the show was ever about. Like, 
Survivor was pitched as, you know, survival of the fittest, Lord of the Flies. And there's nothing more Lord of the Flies than this guy who's like a suburban soccer dad, has a desk job, a wife and kids. Shows up on Survivor. And within five minutes, he's smearing pig's blood on his face, chopping up boxes with a machete and going to hunt pigs. Like, there's no better symbol of Survivor than Mike in Australia because he's the average guy. Just goes absolutely nuts once he's thrown into a survival game. That was Russ Bartlett. Thank, thank you, Russ. Russ Bartlett, yes. We'll give you credit for that one. No, Mike, Mike Scoopin is the man. And I mean, that, that whole episode, too, they had a great confessional. First of all, great confessional with him just being on the, the canoe. Mm-hmm. in general with like the moving background then he just catches a bunch of fish then he brings it back and he cooks it and then he leads them in prayer and it was an awesome <laughs> prayer well it's because god anointed him as the leader so yeah. if god anoints you if you have that kind of blessing you lead him in a prayer that's just the and way it goes apparently kimmy's back was turned but uh i saw it <laughs> she was masturbating <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna choose this moment yeah <laughs> but yeah that's the thing it's there's so many things I'd love to talk about Australia, but yeah, Mike has got to be right up there. Like, he was not just the guy that fell in the fire. This guy was the single-handedly most entertaining guy the first half of Australia. Like, the show should have absolutely died without him in it, and it's to the show's testament that he, it stayed going and stayed interesting even without him. But like, man, he was a good character. He was he was the top of the game in everything. We talked about how awesome pre-merge was, and he's a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, here we go. Here's an email from a reader named Cody Ross. He goes, you have to mention the scene where Mike thanks God for making him the tribe leader. It's basically the greatest unintentional comedy scene in Survivor history until Heidi shows up. How we'll get to we Heidi. <laughs> how quickly we forget. First of all, how quickly we forget Clay Jordan and all that. But And Rudy. Yeah. But and still, all others. It's but a yeah, good scene. But again, just the Mike stuff. If, you know, if there's anything you should appreciate about Australia, it's that it had Mike in it. And you know, I don't. There's been rumors over the years he may come back again. I don't want to talk about that too much. But man, he is one guy I would love to see again, just because that guy was freaking badass. Everything he did was good TV. If he comes back now, it's ten years later. But I bet you he'd still go out there and catch fish. I'm telling you now. And I sure hope he has pig's blood on the face, because that's all I'm really hoping for from him. Speaking of appreciating things, you know what I would like? I'd like two blankets. And you know what I'd like to do for two blankets? What would you like to do for two blankets, Jack? I'd like to jump off a fucking cliff. <laughs> Was that episode two or three? I always forget. Episode, episode. two. That's two? Yeah, that's... Uh, someone wrote in... Uh, I forget who wrote this in, but they said, you got to talk about the jumping off the cliff challenge because that's got to be the most dangerous thing that's ever happened on Survivor. And I think that's a very good point. Oh, totally. Yeah, especially when one of them is Roger who can't swim. Let's throw him off a cliff. <laughs> Roger's face. Like, not even... You know, everyone made a big deal about the jump. But the jumper, whatever, he jumped in the thing. But when, when you see his head bob up out of the water and he's going, that is fear. That is pure <laughs> fear. I mean, it is, it is legit fear face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that. I mean, I mean he makes it too. He swims, although they, admittedly they come and they pull him. But still, he made it. I mean, that was – Roger was not a young guy. And he's not a small guy. He's a big dude. Like, I, <laughs> that, that took a lot of guts for him to go plummeting off that cliff. <laughs> He can't and swim. then they go swimming down the rapids, and then they get down yeah, to this beach that the sun's so hot they can't even walk on the sand. It's, I mean, epic, epic challenge. Yeah, uh, I mean, Paul, the old mining camp, Paul. Oh, the old mining camp. Yeah, still, uh, still hanging on to some of the storytelling from the season before. Before, I think we see it there. Then we see it um, during the the uh, Travoy challenge where they have to build the. Um, you know, they take him to like the the medical camp, and it's like set up like it's a medical camp there. Yeah, there's like strychnine or something in there. 
that wasn't right. Whatever. So that was episode two. Yeah, and then episode two. So you had Beef Jerky Gate. You had Jumping Off the Cliff. What else was going on in that one? That was uh, obviously Kel gets voted out. And there's something else I'm missing there. Things were heating up at things were heating up at that encampment. And yes. uh, yeah, and then the spinning the wheel of uh, gross food, um, including an apple and a little bit of a Snickers bar. Oh, that was that one. Okay, yeah, that was. Uh, I have to say, I, I've been a big Tina fan over the years, and I love Tina. And that was that's one of my favorite Tina moments, where she just absolutely cannot get the food down, and then Kimmy comes out. I can eat a worm. I can eat a worm, and I'm not sure where in the hierarchy worms count as not animals, but apparently she can eat it. <laughs> And I love uh, Jeff Varner trying to make her throw, um, trying to make Tina throw up the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember my buddy Nick, I think he got the candy bar or the apple. He got one of the good ones. No, wait, no, he didn't. Cal got the candy bar, right? Yeah. And yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick got that gross bug, I think. He got the gross bug. But you know, Nick. Yeah, Elizabeth and Roger, and then Cal and Colby got the good food. Nick, being the greatest player of all time, got that worm down like a trooper, and he was back in the good graces again. No, and then we good. have uh, Marilyn taking out her teeth. <laughs> yes, that was great. <laughs> Man, I got to watch the second episode again. There's a lot of stuff about that episode in particular that jumps out. I mean, that a lot of those are epic Australia moments. Those are some pantheon moments just from that season. It's like Kimmy can't eat the the cow brain because it's a mammal, and then you know Tina. I mean, that's tripe. That's hard to eat, honestly. Yeah. And they gave a huge ass piece, <laughs> so it, it, it's it's tough in that thing. But uh, before that challenge, really quickly, you can see that whole "I'm going to be the next Richard" or "I'm going to be the next Rudy." Talking about the first season, they got the tree mail, and the tree mail clearly alluded to eating stuff. Uh-huh. And they were like, "Oh, we're going to have to eat things." And someone's like, "Yeah, it's going to be grubs." Wow. <laughs> and then it sure wasn't. It was it was worse than grubs i think maybe i don't know depends by the way if you want like the top 10 pictures that define australia you know you got mike with a pig blood on his face but i always remember kimmy with her mouth open and all that black ink from the worm she ate or whatever all over her mouth <laughs> mangrove worm whatever that? that was yeah i remember that i can eat it she's she's chomping on the worm and tina tina's trying to eat the worm too and then kimmy drops her worm and rather than continue to eat her worm, Tina's decide she's going to tattle on <laughs> she Kimmy. Dropped yeah, she, she dropped it. She dropped it. She dropped it. She's out. And I'm like, no, she can still pick it up and eat it, you dumbass. Was, was Kimmy wearing Elizabeth's headdress then or for the first one? Or, or there was headdress passing on that challenge, too? Elizabeth gives it to her for Kimmy's first time. Kimmy goes up and can't eat the braid. And then she kind of goes back and just kind of, you know, I mean, she hands it over, but kind of chucks it out at Elizabeth on her way back in line. Like, <laughs> thanks for nothing, bitch. <laughs> I thought Elizabeth wouldn't be into handouts. <laughs> Maybe that was the turning point for Elizabeth right there. Maybe that was it. Yeah, she's like, oh, I'm not giving handouts because it comes back to haunt you. Nice. And then the Cal boot. Cal. Cal, yeah. Which <laughs> Cal. I always wondered if she really did think his name was Cal or if she was being funny. And you never know with Mad Dog. Which, okay, well, actually, we should, uh, two things I want to say about this. One, um, they don't uh, show it in um, the actual episode, but they show it in other things later on, what Colby says when he votes for Kel. Kel, thanks for playing. We have some nice parting gifts for you. <laughs> and uh, two, even though we don't get any mention of the first season, this is about as close as we get when, um, when Marilyn talks about if Kel, if Cal was di- you know, dying of thirst in the desert, every oh, single yes. one of us would give you a drink of water. See, that's the thing. Mad Dog would have been TV gold if she'd stuck around because she was trying. She knew what the producers wanted from her, and that was one of the great, se- the great quotes of the season. <clears throat> and I guess that leads us right into the Mad Dog boot episode, episode three. 
Tina is a constellation. <laughs> yes. I do like, and she says earlier, it's, you know, she's, she's in the water and she's, you know, singing and, and hanging out with Tina and it's, you sing the bond. She says, I am bonded to Tina. I think she is great. I don't trust Jerry. <laughs> what are some of the things that she said have really, really made me bristle. <laughs> and you guys are making me appreciate Mad Dog more. <laughs> now, I don't remember too many things about episode three other than that's the episode that made me really fall in love with Tina. Because I always call that the Tina is a badass episode. Do you guys, that's the one where she turns on Mad Dog. You remember that? Sure. Right. Yeah. This is, yeah. <clears throat> I remember this. I was, uh, I was in, I was specifically watching this episode. I remember this is the one I think where they were all tied together and it was like the relay race. And then and Roger Mad kept Dog falling falls. and Mad Dog kept falling. Yeah. And then, uh, and they get to the end. I remember I was watching, I was in Boston that weekend. I happened to be visiting my brother at Harvard and we went over to visit Nick, but Nick wasn't there. But anyway, I'm watching this episode on TV and at the end of the episode, Mad Dog is like, oh, I love Tina. We're joined at the hip. So, you know, we're best friends. And then the next thing you see is Tina voting for Mad Dog. And I'm like, that is the most heartless thing I've ever seen on TV. Cause we have never seen something like that on Survivor before where a best friend just cut someone's throat that early in the game. And I remember calling my wife, who was in California, three hours behind him, like, you've got to watch this episode. It's the most heartless thing I've ever seen on Survivor. And I wouldn't tell her what it was, but it's like, it was the Tina moment. And I always remember that's the moment that I really thought Tina was a badass. I'm like, dude, she just voted out her best friend. That's a, she's a killer. And I, I always remember that. That's the Tina moment. I think sometimes people are kind of, you know, ahead of the ahead of their time or something like that. And I think Tina kind of was in that thing uh-huh. or maybe wasn't, but it was, we were getting the glimpse of people starting to just see this game as, you know, I need to be to the end. And in order for me to get to the end, I'm going to have to do whatever I need to do, which is maybe vote mad dog out because she doesn't fit in the equation. She's weak, you know, and mm-hmm. it was all about getting to the merge with numbers or getting the advantage at the merge and having mad dog around. She fell so much in that challenge. Colby had to literally just drag her across the finish line. Uh-huh. And he'd do it again. <laughs> I'd do it again for you. <laughs> Did you hear that? He'd do it again. <laughs> But yeah, that was the thing. But okay, you make a good point. If it wasn't Tina, it might have been somebody that had decided that, you know, sticking with the numbers and the alliances is better than friendship. But no one had done that before. So that's the thing I always remember with Tina. It, it did, probably didn't have to be her first. Maybe someone else could have been her, could have been first. But it was that episode, that vote for Mad Dog that really did it. I'm like, dude, this lady's a killer. And I, she was my favorite from there on out all the way the rest of the season. Her and Nick were the two I was following, obviously, because I had the Nick tie-in. But I was really rooting for Tina because she was just a killer. Who do you like? Oh, I like the I like Colby. He's the nice cowboy. Or I like Keith. He's the chef. Who do you like? I like the southern woman with the big fake boobs. <laughs> How'd like, your wife take that one? <laughs> no, I like Nick. I, I root for the lazy black guy. <laughs> Dude, he made a kitchen. Don't made, even. I know. No, I'm a big Nick fan. If Nick's hearing this, please don't kill me. But yeah, it was. <laughs> I will tell you. I think that's the episode. I remember this specifically because I'm. I'm a. Uh, like I said, I was in Boston. I was actually in the dorms at Harvard watching that episode with my brother. And that's the episode where Varner says Nick is very lazy, and my brother just started busting up because he's like you know nick's in class we're all gonna say that to him tomorrow in class every time he raises his hand he's like nick's lazy we're gonna like uh i couldn't get the work done professor because nick was lazy so he's like we're gonna have he's gonna be we're gonna rag on him for that the rest of the year so i always remember that's the third episode right there all right so anyway that's uh kind of episode three it's the i call it the tina as a badass episode i don't remember 
too much more than the Nick, you know, coming out as being the lazy one. But, you know, there's some really good stuff coming up in the next three episodes. So three is one I kind of gloss over. Is there any more you guys have to say about the third episode? There's the great moment of Michael versus Colby with the water things on the, you know, over their shoulders. And it it breaks because they haven't tested this challenge, you know, uh-huh. even, even, uh, even more. And if I'm right, doesn't doesn't Tina like tattle on Cole, on Mike as well, just like she did with Kimmy the one before? She's like, they're Paul broke, they're Paul broke. I think if you look, you can see that. <laughs> I haven't noticed that before. I have to look at that. Now, uh, no, Tina, the rule taskmaster. That's right. You think she's like a Lewis kid? <laughs> that's a that's a reference to Jenna and her brother cheating at All Stars. We'll come back. We'll get to that later for all you people. That's um, so awesome. But I, I will point out that uh, most most newer fans know this, but. That uh, the challenge in Australia where Colby and Mike competed to see who could carry the most water on their shoulders was actually filmed in Borneo between, was it Richard and Joel, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was filmed and used in Borneo. They just never showed it on TV. So they just cut it out of the episode and they reused it in Australia. So, but it was actually a rerun that was a kind of an unintentional homage to Borneo for the challenge they never got to show. And did Kucha, did Kucha win that one? No, Ogre Corps did. Ogre won that one. They won the fishing supplies and stuff, and at the end of it, Michael Scoop's like, let's get out of here. I don't want to hear him cheer anymore. That's right. I seem to remember Elizabeth doing her little war whoop. Do you remember her little war cry? She does that at the end of the immunity challenge when they win, and then that's when we hear Alicia say, no, no, wait, hold on. I'm going to get mixed up. She's with Alicia, and then uh-huh. she does that yell. I'm thinking back to the challenge before when we hear Alicia say, uh, when they jump off the cliff, we hear Alicia say, work your magic. <laughs> Now that 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 was a she's doing a Xena Warrior Princess war cry, right? Is that what she was doing, Elizabeth? No idea, but I just know ten-year-old Paul was very fascinated. Yeah, if you watch Australia, listen for her little war cry. Elizabeth goes, Aye! and I, I think what she's doing is Xena Xena Warrior Princess. I've never actually seen that show, but I remember people writing about it on the internet. That's her Xena tribute. So, if you think Elizabeth cannot be more adorable, that's what she was doing. Her little Xena impression. Was she going meta? Because, you know, Xena is played by Lucy Lawless, who I believe is Australian, isn't she? Oh, maybe she was. Elizabeth is one step ahead of the rest of us on most of her jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So any more about episode three? I think we're ready to move on to the big shakeup in episode four. Big shakeup. All right, I'll let you handle this one, Paul. Episode four is one of my all-time favorite episodes. Let's lead us into this one. Right, okay. Well, first we'll talk about some of the other minor things before we get to the vote and how uh, how the game really shakes up. We have the uh, a challenge that's very important for the next episode, episode five. Um, Kucha wins their chickens, um, continuing their, their winning streak here. And uh, uh, Kimby's not too happy about that. She just wants some tofu. <laughs> uh, um... What else and the chickens have names. Was anyone else really about the chickens having names? Ruby, Henrietta, and I, I think, I can't remember what the other ones are. I don't know if they say them. Um, oh, and the episode four also, before we can get to the vote, is the episode that uh, Michael Scoopin kills a pig. Oh, that's the one. Oh, what a great oh. scene. Oh, yes. And they had the parental advisory before that to warn kids. It was going to be graphic. And they had to, like, set, like, all these protesters from PETA came out. That was, that was just a great moment in Survivor history where Mike just says, you know, fuck it, I'm going to go kill a pig. <laughs> Remember, kids, you can totally watch a chick talking about masturbating in the, in the, in the, in the outback. <laughs> but, a, but a crazy psychopath from Michigan <laughs> stabbing a pig off camera, that's, yeah. that's no go, buddy. Yeah. Mike's got a spear. Mike's going to go kill a pig. Yeah, Mike, go. Go ahead. Kill a pig. 
That's classic Mike. He's an idiot. He's a classic Mike, right? <laughs> Although, again, telling the story from a Nick-centric point of view, one thing I always remember about that scene is when Mike corners the pig. Do you remember Nick kind of comes around the other side? And Mike's like, here, corner him in. I'll make him charge at you. And Nick's like, no. He's, he's like, whoa, don't charge me. <laughs> yeah. I always remember Nick being scared shitless by this pig. Now, I know leading up into this vote, we kind of get a scene like kind of hinting towards what's going later on is when we see um, Jerry and Colby going on a little pig hunt of their own. And uh, we have the famous sign from Jerry they always use when they're making some like little video about her being uh, a villain. You know, because it's, it's hard to get like one clip showing like Jerry Manthe being this big villain from season two. So they always use this clip. She's kind of uh-huh. bent over tying her shoe and she looks up at Colby and says, it's not like you're making a deal with the devil here. And that's, that's always the clip they use. And they're kind of, she's kind of, you know, talking about, uh, she's kind of worried about Tina because Tina's thinking a lot. And we, it does not really focus on a lot. You know, back in the day, Survivor editing used to be way more subtle than it is now. You know, we're not told by, by, uh, Jeff in the opening, you know, the, the recap of the show. And Tina feels on the outside. Can she come up with a plan to take down Jerry? You know, I mean, it's, it's very subtle the way it's set up. So do you guys have anything else to add before we get to the actual tribal council? Um, about that moment, no, not specifically, but that's right. It's 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 tough to find a soundbite where Jerry becomes the villain. Like she's not Russell talking crap about everyone behind their backs. Like yeah, that's the closest they really had. Yeah. Uh, two two things before the uh, tribal council. Number one, it's also Nick then running back to the camp after Mike has killed the pig. Yeah. And Every- and he has he Nick is the best narrator of all time. Mm-hmm. He has to be because then he comes back and is like Mike killed a pig, and uh, <laughs> you know he just cornered it and he he stabbed yeah. it. it, it it's pretty bad, man. <laughs> he's, he's stabbed. He's stabbed pretty bad, Terry. He's like it's pretty bad. It's pretty messy. It's like thanks, Nick. That's really descriptive. And then yeah, Eliz- and- about, he he sells it to Elizabeth because she's like, oh, it's so good. It's such a good thing that Kimmy's not here. <laughs> yeah, remember Alicia comes. She's like. Oh, what'd she say? Uh, something about Kucha Camp, how uh, bad things in Kucha Camp today or something what like that? What did she say? Um, lot of blood. Like, she's like, a lot of blood in Kucha Camp today or something. Yeah. And Elizabeth's like, oh my God, and starts crying. <laughs> yeah, she's crying, yeah. <laughs> that was such a great scene. Um, It's like, man, there's never anything like that on Survivor anymore, but I don't think they're even allowed to hunt anymore like that. But that was just, that was just, I mean, some awesome TV. Mike, you know, suburban computer dad, putting pig's blood on his face and killing a pig. <laughs> And then, in a sidebar to that, going to the, the, I believe it's the reward challenge, and you know, they're like, Jeff's like, "How are you guys eating?" And Ogakor is like, "Yeah." And then Cooch is like, "We killed a pig." Yeah, look at Mike's face; he's got blood on it. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. And then the other thing, correct me if I'm wrong, is this also where we learn that there's a forest fire nearby? Yeah, although I, I feel like I, it's I, mentioned. Ah, I feel like it's mentioned earlier on. Yeah, it's like a next episode on Survivor, they show it, but it, it never really factors into the episodes. It's just kind of, is there it's to there. Highlight, yeah, highlight the peril that they might be in? Yes. Yeah, because I think, I think it's at the tribal, it's, it's either at the episode four tribal council, the episode three tribal council, where Jeff Probst kind of opens it up like, first of all, I want to address with you guys the out of control wildfire that's burning here. Like, just kind of like, a, okay, we've <laughs> yeah. got some footage of this, want to be able to use this, got to get the sound bite, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and all uh, right, with that, I think we're right up to Tribal Council number four, which has got to be one of the, me- the most underrated Tribal Councils in Survivor history, one that nobody ever talks about, and everybody should, because this was really one of the first great Tribal Councils in Survivor history. Right. I mean, so, so uh, you know, the whole thing condensed. Uh, Tina and Keith convince Colby 
to flip over to, to their alliance, um, leaving the alliance of Mitchell, Jerry, and uh, Amber. And I mean, stro- uh, the condensed story is he flips. They vote off. Uh, they vote for Mitchell. It's a tie, three-three tie. They re-vote. No one changes their vote. Mitchell has a vote from Keith, the previous tribal council, which sends Mitchell packing. Um, but just recently, as I was talking about. Um, hearing uh, Mitchell and Jerry talk about this and this is kind of you kind of get a sense that this is kind of a last minute thing that happened because when Tina's voting she says something about um, uh, on the way here on the hike here you know a new plan was developed um, and so what Mitchell was talking about just you know a couple weeks ago was that you know on the hike to tribal council uh, Tina came up to him and said um, you know will you vote off I can't remember if it was Jerry first or Amber first we vote off Jerry and Mitchell said, no, I can't vote off Jerry. And she said, well, how about Amber? And, and uh, he said, no. And she goes, well, then I might have to vote for you. And he said, you do what you have to do. And so um, it was with that that they decided to vote off Mitchell. Colby was on board in hopes of keeping Ogrecourt strong. And, you know, from that, we see the the Keith, Tina, Colby, you know, threesome bond uh, there together that, you know, eventually will take it to the final three. But, you know, very fir- first really kind of, overthrow of someone or a, or a big power shift, you know, and that's something that we didn't mention um, what kind of started this uh, in episode four um, were the comments that Jerry made in the final three, or the, the episode three tribal council oh, when yeah. uh, when Jerry talks about Jeff asks who's, who she bonds with, and yeah. being being the ruthless bitch she is she yeah. you know, names who her friends are which uh, yeah. does not include <laughs> Keith and Tina, which kind of starts this movement of uh, trying to get Colby on Keith and Tina's side. That was a great moment too, because I remember I mean, that was the hatred for Jerry was at an all time peak. And I remember that at the end of episode three, she's like, well, my friends are Amber and Mitchell. And like, I remember just the message boards going crazy. Like, who's this stuck up bitch thinks she is? She like she could just flaunt her friendship over the other two, the, the one she doesn't like. And it's just I remember that, too, specifically. Ask go down to the whole concept of team because, you know, Jerry thought that she had she had Mitchell and she had Amber and then she thought she had Colby. So she had this uh, group of four and, you know, she thought if they went to the merge, then, you know, Ogre would somehow take the advantage and then she would be the leader in this group of four. I mean, when mm-hmm. you had ran those things through your head on day nine or whatever, you know, you're set, you're good. And then all of a sudden you could say whatever you want to say or you start to relax mm-hmm. and you start to just say whatever you want to say. And sometimes stuff like this comes out and boy, it's on camera and we remember. Yeah. And that was such a great moment because it, it leads to, you know, the overthrow. And like, I go back to Tina being a badass, even though, you know, Colby was probably just as much responsible, but in the episode, it's really Tina who gets up there in the voting confessional and says, you know, famous quote in the spirit of the Olympics, let the games begin, which is, it's, it's really, that's kind of the era of survivor. It's really starts with that quote. That's when power, when, alliances can be overthrown because it had never really happened before then. And after she said that, if you listen really closely, you could hear Mario Lanza swooning. Oh, it was it was it was wonderful because a lot of people don't know the the tie in there that the Olympics literally were in Australia that summer. So she was referencing a current event that's kind of dated now. But that that, it was very topical. Well, and uh, then. During the revote, they show her again. She gets a little bitchier, saying that she didn't come out here to st- uh, to starve and face the elements to keep the weakest person. <laughs> yeah. Well, she only said that in response to Mitchell's incredibly 
awesome uh, speech. <laughs> you know, when Jeff says, "Yeah," when Jeff's like, "Hey, well, we're gonna revote, but you know, say something." And Mitchell's like, "I'm done. I'm drained. I'm tired." <laughs> well, I, I bet I bet you guys will find this interesting. Uh, Mitchell was talking about this, and he said when he went up to vote that tribal council, he actually looked in the urn, uh, mm-hmm. tried to gain a peek, and he saw that Colby had voted for him. And mm-hmm. so he knew right then and there that, uh, that, 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 that that was going on. He went and sat down and he whispered to Jerry and he whispered to her, uh, Colby voted for me. And Jerry's like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. And uh, um, I think that's an interesting, uh, fun little uh, tidbit there that Mitchell was uh, peeking in the urn and uh, knew that it was uh, – <laughs> well, he was so tall. I mean, I don't know that anyone else could uh, you know, have such an aerial uh, vantage point, but – well, the area was overfished, so he knew how to look for the urn. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's funny. A lot of the time when people talk about Tina, they said, oh, she got lucky. She rode Colby's coattails or she's the sweet, nice mom. I'm like, well, yes, yes, and yes. But she was also real bitchy. And it was fun when it would actually come out every so often, like in that quote. The, I did not starve myself. <laughs> just, yeah. It's just funny to watch her have a little edge to her that I don't think people remember her having so much of an edge, but she did. I'd cook, but I don't like to be judged. <laughs> yeah. That is the, by far the bitchiest thing said that entire season. <laughs> by our friend, the good southern mom who drinks milk, Tina. <laughs> who, uh, her first sip of wine was on Survivor. Yes. I lo- you know, you can make fun of me for loving Tina, but I, she's such and a dichotomy. I know. She's such a dichotomy that she's the sweet, demure southern mom. But yeah, she's just got this edge, and she'll say nasty things about people, and like she drives a Harley. She's really an interesting little duality in personality. Yep. So Mitchell left, and you know what was great about Mitchell's book, if you remember this, it, is that you know Mitchell gets the gets the the tie comes in, then they revote, and then it's a tie again, and then we learn the past votes thing, and Mitchell has the previous vote, so that's enough, and he goes up and he literally shakes Jeff's hand as he <laughs> snuffs his torch. Yeah. That's funny. I remember you hear Nick saying he was blindsided. He was blindsided real bad, Terry. <laughs> That's now my running joke. I'm going to keep using that one. How tall was Mitchell? He was real tall. He was tall real bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes, Mitchell. You know, Mitchell's one of those guys. He was one of the bigger stars going into Australia. He got a lot of press just because, you know, he's a freak because he's seven feet tall. He was also a uh, intern at Entertainment Weekly, so he literally wrote for the magazines that were writing about Survivor. So he got a lot of press. Then he kind of went out like a bitch, and I hate to say that, but he kind of did. But, I mean, he was part of a historic blindside. No one really talks about him anymore, but he was a good character for that era. I mean, he was he was a standout character for four episodes of Australia. You know, he deserved to go after his answer in the trivia challenge that you should never build a uh, fire near a rock slide was his answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Always bad as rock slides. Don't do that. Okay, one of my favorite trivia things about Mitchell, I don't know if you guys remember his biography, but one of the things about, he had a, he had a whole list of things he wanted to do in his life, and one of them was try out for the Harlem Globetrotters, and he actually did that, he he auditioned for the Harlem Globetrotters before he went out on Survivor, and just I'm just picturing how fast those guys would have just beaten his ass in basketball, the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> against Mitchell. Yeah, this is the same guy who they get the tree mail about something about rocks. They go yeah. like, they're like, oh, maybe it'll be rock climbing. And he's like, a little weak for climbing rocks. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah, Way to so, pump up the team there, Mitchell. <laughs> so I just always picture Mitchell in his, in his audition with the Globetrotters, them just running the score up on him 100 to nothing in like two minutes. <laughs> And with that, I believe we are done with the first four episodes. Anything more to add? 
No, um, I think Ogukor's uh, winning streak is about to come to an end here. Kucha. Ah, yes. It's time for the big Kucha dominance era. And we start, of course, with Kucha's proudest moment in episode five, which is the Kimmy and Alicia fight. Very epic, epic fight in Survivor history. And what, what's funny is that you would think, I mean, Alicia's a great character and Kimmy is a fantastic character. And please don't let me uh, say this by saying that I'm, I'm bagging on either one of them. But that Alicia-Kimmy fight, I mean, that's the big single reason why Alicia made All-Stars, right? Absolutely. That mean, She was as famous as anybody for a while, maybe just for an episode or two because of that fight. Because they just would replay that endlessly, just oh, yeah. over and over and over. And every so often, if you look close, you can see Jeff Varner in the background slinking off because he was the one who had started the fight and then left. And then they panned to Mike Scoopin shaking his head with that crazy-ass smirk on his face. Mike Scoopin stealing a scene again. <laughs> yes. And I think there was a Nick shot in there, too, for those of you scoring along with the Nick footage at home. Nick also gives a reaction shot. Was he sitting in his kitchen or in the lounge chair that he made for the tribe? Yeah, he was relaxing pretty bad, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> yes so but that that i mean that quote that that whole fight has been played so many times it kind of lost some of its power but man that was just something you were quoting all week the next week just i will always wave my finger in your face which because that's such a good argument ender like there's no comeback for that <laughs> I will, i'm t- i'm sick of you and the fucking chickens <laughs> yeah you heard it speaking of kimmy by the way did you know I'm not sure if Kucha did this or if Kimmy did this, but do you know that one of the chickens was named after a pet chicken she had back home, like her beloved pet chicken, Henrietta? <laughs> and so, oh. like, when, when Kimmy was all wrapped up in the chickens and being friends with them, it's because either she had named the chicken after her beloved childhood friend or because Kucha did that just to mess with her. And I'm not sure. I forget what it was, but literally one of the chickens, I think Henrietta, was named after her beloved childhood chicken that she had to put down or something. Oh man! The chickens had tags when they got them. I remember them. Oh, getting did they? The chicken. Yeah. Okay, so CBS named the chicken after Kimmy's chicken. <laughs> so CBS did some research about uh, Kimmy's beloved pets. Exactly. It's like, how can we mentally torture these people the most possible? Let's take the girl with the chicken fetish, the one who loves chickens, and name one of the chickens after her best friend. <laughs> so yeah. So there you go. If you want some example of CBS just being dicks and for no reason other than to be a dick, that's there's one of them right there. Yep, and then uh, we get our we get our challenge. This is, I believe, the stretcher challenge, and yes. uh, it's it's brought to us by the good people at Target, where they can you know <laughs> uh, pick some some things out of a catalog, which yes. is always fun. <laughs> plus plus toothpastes and deodorants and shampoo, so that we can bathe Kimmy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one where Ogakor loses and, and Amber starts crying, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. She's yeah, she's so like, sick of losing because oh my god, it's so sad. Yeah, because the, <laughs> the next time when she wins, she has tears of joy. Tears of joy, Jeff. Oh my god, tears <laughs> of joy. <laughs> yes, Amber. Oh yes. <clears throat> By the way, for a lot of people who don't know this era, and I think we talked about this before, but Amber Amber's reputation for years is that in Australia she was known as Jerry's little sidekick, where she kind of followed her along. And what's funny is that for as much as people hated Jerry, they hated Amber, too, just because she was annoying and she tagged along with Jerry in every scene. So she got a lot of crap that she really didn't deserve because she was just, you know, this young girl who was kind of overhead saying, oh, my God, a lot. But, yeah, she she got made fun of incessantly on the message boards. Yeah, I mean, here she is. She's out there, and, and she's, she, was, she was the youngest person out there at the time, wasn't she? Youngest player, yeah. youngest player ever, I think, at that point. At that point, yes, she was she was young, so she, you know she was just out of college or just 
you know, nearing the end of college or whatever she was doing and, and, uh, an administrative assistant. And, and she's just from this little town in Pennsylvania and she gets out there and she latches on to Jerry and, you know, not that, you know, we've already talked about Jerry and the villain status and stuff like that, but Jerry was one to take charge and Amber was all one to let Jerry take charge. And yeah. it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing. Jerry took all the bullets, but, uh, poor Amber just, you know, Keith and Tina and Colby just had very little to no respect for her out there, which was, uh, you know, ultimately what, what did her in. <laughs> I mean, and even from the audience standpoint, we talked about this last time, I think, by the end of the season, if you had to guess, okay, who's going to be brought back for uh, a future all-star season, uh, I think Kimmy would have, uh, people would have ranked her higher than Amber. I think Deb would have been ranked higher than Amber. Amber, Amber and Deb would be, de- would be a duking out at the bottom, but Deb probably wouldn't be picked just to you know rub salt in the wound. <laughs> Here's a great quote. We'll go back to our friend Russ Bartlett, who sends in a lot of great user questions. Here's a question he wanted us to talk about. He said, make sure you discuss how Amber was the star of the season, and everybody knew she would come back someday, and how her masterminding of the season made all the viewers certain that she would one day outlast Richard Hatch. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, uh, if you watch the... Uh, for those first two seasons, they put out like a. You know, this was before. Actually, I'll I'll say this too. Um, watching these early seasons, I had them all in you know, recording VHS, and I remember just like just dreaming of this day when you could like buy a whole season of a TV show like Survivor like on VHS, and I had this like picture in my mind of these like ten VHSs together in like this big box. And um, <laughs> uh, but back then that seemed like such a you know not a reality at all. So what they did was they put out these like it was like, like two and a half hour like kind of summary of the season with some like clips from their audition tapes and just kind of you know kind of fun stuff it's fun to go back and watch now even and uh they show amber's little thing that she which why they even cast her i mean she was at this open call where uh, all she says is that uh i mean clearly they are picking her for some aesthetic reasons not just uh, you know for content because uh-huh. she says that this you know thing that the reason she should be on the show is because she had a dream that the host doesn't even know his name the host <laughs> the host came to her in a dream and uh said that she was the winner so that's why she should be the next survivor which uh who knew she uh the host was uh was right one day wow. she would win and then you forgot the last part where she says, oh, by the way, I'm from a town called Beaver. They're like, all right, cast her. <laughs> the girl from Beaver. Yeah. <laughs> uh, without jumping around too bad, you can look at these early seasons. When, when, we, get to, when we get to All-Stars, we can talk about casting and, and this, that, and the other thing. But you know, some of those characters in All-Stars seem to be no-brainers or shoe-ins because they're big characters who go far. They're winners. They're runner-ups. They're third-place people mm-hmm. uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you have some of those people like Jenna Lewis, uh, like Rob Mariano, who didn't make the merge in his season, and, and, and Amber who make the show and you're sitting there going like, well, they made the show. But if you watch Marquesas and you watch Rob and all of his scenes, you're like, okay, I can see why they brought this guy back Yeah, because you know, he was a character on TV and then you're like, and Amber, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I, I don't have a, I don't have a thing. Exactly. And it's funny. Cause like you look at it now and like she, doesn't really make sense why she was in that cast. But like at the time, no one even thought of she, because Amber was there. They're like, I can't even be bothered to think about why she ends in the cast because freaking Amber's in there. And why the hell did Amber make All Stars? Not make, win, win, own, yeah. dominate. Of course, greatest player ever. <laughs> that is very good. Now let us get back to episode five. Yes, and we'll get back with plenty to say about All Stars in the future. So we had the uh, the stretcher challenge, and we bathed Kimmy because Kimmy is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, you know that was kind of me. That was kind of gratuitous. There was no reason to have that in the episode. 
It's like, okay, here's Cammy. She's full of shit. Let's vote her. <laughs> <laughs> Inside and out, she's full of shit. Um, and then we get the little line in there about Michael saying, I, and she got real defensive when I told her she you know, was dirty. <laughs> I mean, I told her, if I had a booger hanging out of my nose and you said, and you showed me, I would say, thank you. I wouldn't get all mad and upset. Thank you. That was a great quote. So was that why she was voted out, just for the dirt? <laughs> dirty girl, dirty girl. Dirty girl. And then the immunity challenge, this is, this is Ogacore winning this one. This is the maze, isn't it? Yeah, which yeah. is one of the last times that you see that a tribe didn't have to sit people out because yeah, there have... was no, no clear advantage or disadvantage as Cooch is lugging around seven people around this uh, <laughs> course and Ogacore has like two people. Yeah, it's, I have a reader question that actually ties right into this. This is from a friend of mine named Carl Marquez. And he wrote in, uh, he said, During episode five immunity challenge, which was a maze, it was seven kuchas and five ogacores. He says, Normally, they would sit two players out. But Probst allowed them all to play, all, all seven kuchas to run in the maze, and no one to sit out. Since he said the number of players won't be a factor in the game, kucha with seven people in the maze eventually lost the challenge. And Carl asked exactly what you just said. Do you think there was a problem with this challenge since they're all tied up to one another? I mean, he goes, I completely disagree with Probe since the more players, the harder it is to work in a maze because there's more brains working together, the more people arguing, the more bodies. So he says, talk about this. Like, the fast, the fewer players, the faster the tribe can travel, correct? And yeah. you're absolutely right. That that was stupid that he made the Kuchas all compete in that. I mean, it wasn't as um, intense as in Marquesas when they actually were tied together. They just kind of had to run in a group. But, I mean, it's kind of common sense you know yeah. if you have that many more people but i mean to say that you know that's the, exactly the reason they lost i wouldn't go that far because kimmy and roger would have had to compete in the challenge they would have been yeah. you know two-fifths of the team but i think from then on out it's just i mean from after that they just you sit out people just so there, there no one can come back and say that there was an advantage or a disadvantage you never can know uh for sure and what we saw the 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 tape showing there it was it was exactly that. I mean, Ogakor needed it. They wanted it. Didn't Colby have the awesome pep talk before the uh, yes, yeah. challenge? The, uh, uh-huh. This is going to be a hell of a show today, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. I mean, Ogakor wanted it, and they were desperate. And they worked together. They listened. They were really beaming in. And maybe it was because they only had five people, and maybe because Kucha had all seven. I understand all that sort of stuff. And with all the heads bumping and arguing and, and getting together in the challenge. But Ogakor was really focused, and it did look like Kucha was kind of dragging a little ass during that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny. It's if you were to ask me to name my twenty favorite Survivor challenges, just the ones that were the best on TV or the most exciting, there was this one. This is one I always pick, and this is one that I don't think many people would pick. It's the Episode Five Maze Immunity Challenge, because you watch that and it's exciting. I mean, Ogacore needed to win. You got the pep talk from Colby. They're running through the maze at the end. They all come screaming out, and Tina's like, "We're out! We're out! We're out!" And Colby's like, "Go, go!" I mean, that was some really good TV. That was. There's really no equivalent to that in the challenges today, the way they're edited and portrayed and just kind of uh, shown with the music and everything. That maze challenge is really good TV, and I really that's the one where you kind of start rooting for Ogacore a little bit. Well, and let's talk about that. We talked about in the first, uh, in, in the first pod about Borneo, it was really interesting that Pagong was the fan favorite, which is something that someone may not know. Uh-huh. Uh, we need to talk about how Kucha really was the more accepted and uh, the more rooted for tribe than Ogacore was. Yeah, I mean, there's really two factors to that that I would say. You had Roger and Elizabeth on one side, you know, the giving the little heart rocks to his adopted daughter. 
And on the other side, you got Jerry. So, I mean, from a TV production, there's no way you could make anything but Kucha the good guys and Ogakor the bad guys, just because of those two factors, I would think. And then it's then starting in this episode, we kind of you get more of a sense how they they transition into. Well, now we're going to focus more within Ogakor, and you kind of take sides within Ogakor and say, okay, we have Tina and Colby here who are awesome, and we have. Uh-huh. Evil Jerry, her sidekick, and then I don't know where Keith goes and all that. I know you guys are uh, big Keith fans, but I don't know uh, <laughs> yeah. what he was thought of at the time. But um, He couldn't cook rice, Paul. He's good, but he's no Nick. Exactly. <laughs> he, he, he cooks pretty bad there, Terry. <laughs> yes, it's burned. It's burned pretty bad. <laughs> yes. So anyway, yeah. It's so, yeah, but it's funny because episode five is the Ogre comeback. And from a storytelling perspective, that really gets mucked up the next episode because that Mike storyline just sabotages everything. Yeah. And so, I mean, we could – perfect time to go right into episode six unless you have anything more on five because I think this leads in perfectly. I, we need to spend a lot of time on six. <laughs> Kimmy goes. Um, she votes for Jeff, but they never read the vote for Jeff. Of course. And what did she say? She's like, yeah, I heard people saying that there might be some votes for Jeff tonight. And I'm like, who was saying that? The chickens? Like, was that Henrietta? <laughs> She's like uh, – <laughs> This vote really should be for Alicia, but I hear you might get votes tonight. And it was awkward because she was masturbating at the time. <laughs> it was a really awkward <laughs> scene. They had to flash up the, uh, the waist warning up. again. Yeah, <laughs> you see it from the waist up. <laughs> yeah, and we got that warning where we we're like, oh, Mike's killing another pig? Oh, no, just Kimmy. Uh. <laughs> you know, because she's so dirty, you see the cloud of dust flying around her like pig pen. If I had a booger on my face while I was masturbating and you told me I had it, I would say thank you. Now let me finish. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so that will be Kimmy's legacy being survivor. She talked a lot and she was dirty and she talked about masturbating and she had the worm in her mouth that made everything black. That's that's a good legacy, I gotta say. I mean that holds up. I mean, hold it up to Amber's. What do you got? I mean, she, Kimmy was only in five episodes. I could say four giant things about her character. Like, you can't do that in a lot of later seasons or a, a fifth boot. Yeah, Oh, absolutely. Abso- abs- absolutely. And, you know, that's the reason she made All-Stars, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. By the way, um, I think I read somewhere that Kimmy was like a hardcore Republican in real life, which always cracks me up. Like, her? Really? I think I read that. I could be wrong. So if I am wrong, someone write in and correct me. But I think I read somewhere she's like a super conservative in real life. Hmm. I wouldn't have pictured her and Elizabeth agreeing on much on the political spectrum. Yeah, maybe she'll be the next uh, co-host on The View. (laughs) Yes, that's good. Once Barbara Walters croaks. Yeah, if there's going to be masturbation talk on The View, I'd rather it not be Barbara Walters talking about it. Well, normally Whoopi Goldberg's talking about it, so I don't know what's worse. Oh, that's well, yeah, she can make it charming and fun. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, episode six. Here we go, the big one. Trial by fire. People ask me for my favorite Survivor episode. I always say this is the episode. Episode six of Australia. Okay, there's so much to it, so I think it's easier to, to... To go through it chronologically, obviously there's a uh, the big event at the end. Um, one of the opening scenes at um, well, I, well, actually the, the way it opens up is the uh, Cooch comes back from camp and they talk about being wet and cold and they wake up in the morning and Mike is starting the fire, which is you know has all a bunch of symbolism. But then we shoot over to Ogacor and we get the. I may be a lot of things, but I ain't no Hershey bar talk. And <laughs> we get right. the groans of Amber and uh, Jerry in the tent, groaning about every kind of chocolate and meatball sub that they want, and they're pounding on the drum, moaning for Colby. 
You got you got to kind of upspeak that yell. A meatball sub. A meatball sub. Oh yeah! my god! I love so those. Good. M and M's. M and M's. And you go from a meatball sub to M and M's. I mean, can we compare those two? It's funny from a meta storytelling point of view. All of that could be seen as a tribute to Kimmy, the whole masturbation, <laughs> sexually aroused thing. So there you go. A lot of love was taken care because we did see the beginning with Mike and the fire and the symbolism, but it was all about it was nighttime, and then we see Mike tending the fire, and then the the, the colors fade in on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was really a lot of love put into that scene. A lot of love in general. Uh, I haven't spoken about this, but I just want to poke uh, talk about it really quickly. Everyone's confessionals in this season, mm-hmm. the confessionals, where they're standing, where the camera is pointed at them. It's really beautiful when you look at all of that sort of stuff. There's Mike doing confessionals in early seasons, and he's you know in between kind of a split, burnt out tree, and it's just really interesting. Like you know now they're just like ah oh, that spot on the fucking jungle's fine, and yeah. you know that's kind of how it goes. But it was really a lot of good care being put into this stuff back then. I like the one of Mike in the canoe. That's one that I always remember. Yeah, with a moving background. It's really cool. Uh-huh. Hey, remember all the ones Nick does? He's sleeping. <laughs> Nick had interviews? Yeah. He was doing lazy things in every one of them. He was always laying down. Well, he did have the, he did have the great confessional, and I don't want to pile on Nick. And yeah. I know we're going on a tangent, but he does do the one where he's like, well, I made a kitchen, and I made a, I made a lounge chair here. I mean, it's not stuff we need, but, you know, it's kind of nice. reminds you of home, and it gives the, it gives the illusion of looking like work. There you go. Perfect, Nick. See, he's thinking ahead of the curve. He's not lazy. He's smart. Yeah. He's not working hard. He's working smart. That's right. (laughs) And getting back to the chocolate moaning and and all this, you get this description of uh, Jerry Manthe's fantasy is what she wants to do. She wants to lick lick hot chocolate (laughs) off some guy's bod. Some dude's bod. I like how she specifies that she wants hot chocolate and she wants to have sex with this guy while licking it off at the (laughs) same time. (laughs) Come on, where was the parental warning before that? Seriously. <laughs> like, come on, get these goons out of here. Bring on Kucha. <laughs> That's a good snapshot into late 90s, early 2000s speak. Some dude's bod. <laughs> <laughs> Some hot dude's bod. <laughs> That's funny. It's fantastic. And then the I may be many things, but I ain't no Hershey bar. And the bring on Kucha. Get rid of these goons. <laughs> Just a great, yeah, that, that whole sequence is just hilarious. I wrote about that on the Funny 115 a couple times just because I love that whole sequence. And then I think they get the, the tree mail for the survivor picnic. Just think what this picnic is going to give them. S- they're just fantasizing sandwiches, chips. Uh, they're going on and on with all these different things. Oh, you know there's going to be dessert. Meatball sub! <laughs> Meatball sub! <laughs> Well, in and out of this, isn't didn't Jerry try to like pick those tomatoes this season, and they were having like the tomatoes, and 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 they were green, the and, and Keith green. was bitching about them. Yeah. Is that five or six? I don't know. That's, that might I, that might be. Um, I think that might be the that might be the fallout. Um, after they don't win the uh, picnic, uh, I feel uh, like yeah. that's maybe where that scene comes in. Well, let's go to the picnic. Yeah. So they show up <laughs> for the picnic and um, are delighted to see that the huge feast will consist of Doritos and Mountain Dew. Doritos. <laughs> yeah. And what's what's great is it's something that Jeff Probst did, and God bless Jeff Probst for this. And I wish he did this more in the thing where you know he brings out the Mountain Dew and everyone just goes apeshit for Mountain Dew. Hey, I would too. And he's just like, I'll give you a taste. And he pull, he cracks one open and he takes a little cup and he pours literally like a spla. It's not even a splash. It's a spla of Mountain Dew. And he's like, pass it around and share. <laughs> That's funny. 
Hey, remember, do you remember Jerry in the background doing her best to make sure she gets camera time going, do the do, baby, do the do. She's yelling out the product, the product's slogan. So, Jerry, you don't need to fight for camera time. He's <laughs> the, the spla of Mountain Dew, and they all share it. And then he's like, here's one chip. <laughs> I love that scene. That's torturous. That's ridiculously awesome. Uh, <laughs> mad respect to Jeff Probst for that. That is awesome. He's sadistic. He's sadistic real bad, Terry. <laughs> but yeah, that was great. And then it leads up to maybe the greatest challenge of all time. I love this challenge with all of my heart. This is one I wish more people remembered or loved because this is the one where they, they're blindfolded and Jerry and uh, is it Nick lead them through the blindfold challenge. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jerry and Nick. <clears throat> Nick Brown doing something awesome. Nick Lucky Brown. Nick. That's Which, right. The start okay. of the season. I love this. That um, – um, in the the two seasons following All Stars, um, Jerry has to be the caller because you know she did this challenge before. She does it in All Stars, doesn't Heroes versus Villains. After that, yeah. she's this expert, which she's yeah. horrible at this challenge. There's Amber, who's like is like inches away from winning, and she's yeah. standing there. And Jerry's like, go, 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 yeah. go, go, pointing as if pointing. Amber's going to see what way she's pointing to. Well, I love the irony that the whole season. You know, Amber is like Jerry's little sidekick. They call her Lamber because she followed Jerry down like a little lamb. And it, the irony is that they couldn't win this challenge because Amber couldn't do what Jerry was telling her to do. <laughs> well, correct me if I'm wrong. The challenge was set up. They had the collars, and then they had the rest of them, like, in pairs. Yes, they were all tied yeah. together. So it was Amber and Keith, if well, I remember, and then it I, was Tina and Jerry. But I don't I think— and, but- but they were they, holding hands, right? That was like their strategy that they would travel in pairs, but they weren't tied together because once Amber gets that basket at the end, she's mm-hmm. by herself and is like uh. and going around in circles. But but for the for most of the challenge, Amber and Keith aren't even in it because they're like walking off like like you know, <laughs> Colby and Tina do all the work for it. And the whole uh-huh. time Colby's yelling at Jerry and when they lose he throws water in her face and mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the ending of that challenge in particular where Amber is literally two feet away from winning. Jerry's pointing. Amber doesn't know what the fuck's going on because she has a blindfold on. And then Nick all of a sudden calls the entire team to run over. They dart in front of Amber. They win by like half a second. And like everyone goes apeshit, starts cheering. I mean, there is no better ending to a Survivor Challenge than that. That is the greatest Survivor Challenge moment I think ever. And then you you have the awesome music. <clears throat> Absolutely, that's, that's the Jeff Jeff Barner eating Doritos music, which and, and, will, yes, and everything going into it. I mean, Jerry is the caller, and I mean, Nick isn't a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He's on Kucha. We like Kucha for the most part, and and here's Jerry, the evil person calling, and and Ogakor is steadily winning this, and you could see Colby, our hero, just being just upset with Jerry the whole time. It was complicated. They had to like put a log on a stand and then uh-huh. fetch a fish trap and put one in, and <laughs> and then go fill water and stuff like that. And 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 Jerry was leading them to a victory, and then it's all Amber has to do is put the basket on the table. Yeah, go 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 <laughs> go with the points, and then Kucha just runs and puts it on there. It was it's amazing. It's fantastic. Well, well, did you guys ever hear how Elizabeth uh, ate her Doritos? She like suck them off she and, and su- not she sucked bite off them. all the cheese, and then Mike ate the what was left of it. Wow, <laughs> I don't know how I know that. So many jokes I can make about that, but I won't. <laughs> I know. I just I heard them all as I said it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Elizabeth sucked it off. I'm like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> But yeah, I always remember that. Not cha- Kimmy. Not Kimmy. <laughs> I always remember that challenge because Nick loses his voice. Fill up the bucket. Fill up the bucket. I mean, that's 
go anybody who likes Survivor or just wants to see Survivor at its best, watch that challenge. That is ridiculously exciting. And then Kucha wins by like a nanosecond, and then everyone goes crazy. And then Roger pipes in with his classic line, "Y'all don't know how close that was." That was a yeah. great scene. Like it, Amber, like looks up and sees how close she was, and she like kind of like. There's this moment where she, like, hangs her head down. She's so, like, you know, just so sad. She lost again. And then in the background, there's Elizabeth yeah. lifts up her blindfold. Oh, my God, you guys! <laughs> That's the greatest moment. Yeah, and then, like they said, the, the Jeff Varner dancing to the music. That's the first time they busted out that alternative theme, the disco theme almost. Yeah, and then and then Kobe because they had the bucket, and then Kobe comes in, and it was an on-target bucket splash. By the way, I mean it was <laughs> yeah. picture perfect, and just drenches her. And Jerry's like, "Thanks, guys, I needed that." <laughs> now I don't know. I've heard mixed stories of he was actually pissed at Jerry, or if he was just cooling her off because she was hot. I don't know. It looks on TV like he's pissed, but I don't know necessarily if if it was as literal as we saw it. He did walk away pissed and did upturn the, the, the bucket. So if he was just cooling her off and frustrated because they lost, that might be there. But it wasn't framed that way. And it's funny because, you know, if Jerry wouldn't have been so hated and everyone wouldn't have hated her so much, the, all that scene is is Colby's just being a dick. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because Jerry was the villain. So yay. <laughs> I was, everyone's like, why didn't she melt? <laughs> yes. But I mean, I, I mean that's... If I could think back to the moments that gave me the most joy on Survivor, that challenge, that is just so much fun to watch. And again, because I had vested interest because I'm a big Nick fan. I'm rooting for Nick. I have this interview with this guy after the season. I want him to do well. He was the hero of the best moment of the season. I'm like, yeah, Nick. Nick Mania is going to take over. And as of course, as we know, it did. And uh, Mario's still waiting for that moment. Yeah, exactly. Come on, Nick. (laughs) I know you can do it. You know, my son's name is Nick, right? We named him after him. We did not name it after him. No, his name is Nick. He's not named after him. It's just a funny little coincidence that my son's name is Nick. (laughs) So, yeah, so so many people remember episode six as the Mike Falls in the Fire episode. But, goddammit, it's got the best challenge ever right before Mike Falls in the Fire. Yeah, absolutely. That and it, it's just drama all the way through. I mean, I defy anyone to watch that that segment of television and not be uh, just on the edge of your seat by the end of it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, through the first five and a half episodes, Australian Outback, I would say, I I might get some arguments with this, was so much better than Borneo because it was just everything Borneo was. It was bigger, bolder. There was blind sides. There was more music. There was more exciting challenges. This is just it was on pace to just be like the absolute best season ever. And we weren't even to the Mike Falls in the Fire, which is like the biggest moment of the season, which is about to happen right now. No, I, I again, I think we talked about it before. It's it's about pre-merge and post-merge. And, you know, when people rate seasons, they say, ah, oh, this had a great pre-merge or this had a great post-merge. But those those episodes before the merge in, in the Australian Outback were special. I thought all the episodes were pretty special, even post-merge, which people find boring. But uh, these these episodes, the Kucha, Ogakor struggle and battle and Jerry and Mike Scoopin over there, and Kimmy, and Alicia. I mean, it's all great. It's fantastic television. Yeah, even the minor characters. I mean, even Mad Dog. I mean, that's the thing. You think of even the minor characters were big. Yeah, but I think that that's the focus of the earlier seasons and the later seasons. I've tried to tiptoe around saying, well, I don't necessarily like the older... I like the earlier seasons. The reason why I like them is 
you know, because the game wasn't as complicated and there wasn't a focus on the numbers and strategy and moves and blindside, we got to know these people a little bit. Yeah. And they were fascinating television. And that was a deal. It just felt like life or death. Every single moment, power shift, everything just felt like it was a big deal. But yeah, so that, I guess, leads us up to the big Mike moment here, which is, you know, it's a tough one to talk about. And it's, I got more user questions about this moment than anything else in Australia. So many people wanted to know, what was the fan reaction like to Mike falling in the fire? Like, I, I could write an entire essay on this. This was a big deal. This was absolutely one of the most shocking things I'd ever seen on TV. Without a doubt. It, yeah. it was... Did it have a did it have a, a advisory before the 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 commercial break? Yeah, I can't it remember. Did. It, it did, did. Yeah. and and what was funny there was there was rumors all over the internet before it happened what was going to happen. No one was entirely sure. There was a couple rumors floating around. One was that Roger was going to break his collarbone, and there was one that Mike got hurt doing something else. And there was one Mike. Someone said, "Oh, I think Mike gets burned because they'd seen a picture of Mike with bandages on his hands in real life," but no one really knew what was going on. And if you watch the end of episode five, the teaser is it shows a crocodile falling in the water and someone screaming. Like they totally hinted like someone's about to get eaten by a crocodile. Yeah, Which, it's, fantastic television. I mean, even the scene now, it's like, I mean, not like a fun one. It's not like carefree uh, t- TV to pop in there. It's, it's a heavy episode, end of, end of an episode. It is, and it's funny. It's like you can almost demarcate Australia into two two phases, the the pre-merge and the post-merge. I mean, it works perfectly with Mike's injury because that's the transition. And it's just such an epic moment. I remember watching it that night because you know, no, everyone knew someone was going to get hurt, but no one knew exactly what was going to happen or how bad it was going to be. And when you saw Mike's skin hanging off of his finger, his hands, I'm like, that is just disgusting. Like, oh, my God, how bad do you have to get burned where your skin starts looking like that? And it's funny, I was watching with my father-in-law at the time, and he doesn't necessarily like reality TV. And he's like, well, that's fake. Look, they even made it look like it's fake. I'm like, that is not fake. That's his hands hanging, peeling off his skin. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine the pain that he had. Uh, I just I just burned my thumb last weekend a little bit. I mean, it's just a minor second-degree burn. Uh, you know, nothing to speak of. But, I mean, the, it just doesn't go away, and it just intensifies. And he's there, I mean... He's got his skin is off his hands, and he's in that dirty water because that's only going to feel mildly better. Uh-huh. And I, I just can't even imagine. And I mean, it, it's it's really compelling television. And I have to say, props to Elizabeth and a lot of the people. I thought that the Kucha people handled that scene incredibly well. Well, not only did they handle it, but they narrated it perfectly. They all said, mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't have written their lines better. They 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 said exactly what was appropriate for every little part of that scene. It's really well done. And it's amazing because, it, again, it's not scripted. This is just them talking, I mean, off the top of their heads. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth's got a good uh, a good thing. Elizabeth did really, really well. I mean, if you notice, Mike, you know, when Mike burns his hands, he runs out in the ocean. He's holding his hands. He's pulling them up out. And they're trying to give him uh, instructions, and he's there. And, you know, they're, they're pouring water on him and getting him, you know, his canteen. They're trying to keep him cool and hydrated and talking to him and making him stay awake. I mean, it is, it is really, really good job by, by them because they're not the medical team. They're just waiting for the medical staff to arrive. Uh-huh. They do a really good job. And then we see uh, the only shot that Mark Burnett makes it into the show is uh, when they come out with the stretcher. 
Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's that's when you know it's a big deal when the producer shows up on a reality show. I mean, the show is so good at being like uh, transparent, where you never see the cameraman, you never see the army of producers and film people filming behind the scenes. That all of a sudden they turn the cameras around and you see all these people just going crazy, running down stretchers, you know, medics. I mean, that's when you know something was a big deal. Like, it is amazing that they took. I mean, not to to belittle Mike's part in all this, because obviously it was a big life-changing event, but like something that's, that was this serious and this big a deal and this threatening to the franchise, and they turned it into a compelling TV episode that was still appropriate to watch at the same time. It wasn't, we're, we're, not, we're not exploiting this guy's injury for ratings. It, was, it felt like it was appropriate to watch. They handled it sensitively, and it's amazing that they kind of handled it the way that they did. Well, I think it was a question that was on all of our minds. It goes back to the whole premise of Survivor at the beginning. You know, we all thought, hey, they're going to kill people on an island. Uh-huh. And and it wasn't that. It's this social game voting people out of the tribe. But that survival aspect is in there. And, and I mean, it does cross your mind every once in a while. What if someone gets really flipping hurt on this show? And I, I first thought of that when they were jumping off the cliff in episode two of, uh, of uh-huh. Australian Outback. And then you have Mike really getting hurt really, really badly. And, you know, the medical immediately came in. They got him out of there. And you, you had a feeling like, well, they, they were prepared for something like this a little mm-hmm. bit. And then, you know, you saw it impact the game. And, and, and you know, it's the fact that it happened at camp with everyone, you know, not around but around uh-huh. and, and all that sort of stuff. I think it was really interesting. Especially with the with the narration afterwards, you know, with Elizabeth, with the narration, uh, and Jeff Varner's is almost heartbreaking. His 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 talking about you know hearing it and oh, all yeah. that sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's really really gripping interview, and it's particularly noteworthy because Varner doesn't give those kind of interviews. Varner's the guy who snarks about everything, and all of a sudden he kind of drops out of Jeff Varner mode. And he starts telling a very harrowing tale of hearing this whole thing and what it would have been like to hear this and see it. Like, he really transported you right into that moment, and it really kind of takes you out of your comfort zone. Well, he narrates exactly from from the Ogakor's perspective, because he says, I'm sure the other tribe's going to hear about it. And they're good people. They're going to, you know, hope that everything's okay and everything works out. But they didn't hear it. They weren't here. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, they got the note and Jerry got the note. And Jerry, our bitch villain of the season, gets the note. And you can see she's genuinely concerned. She's like, I hope they're okay. And, you know, they all sit around and talk about it. But, I mean, it's exactly right. I mean, we Mm -hmm. saw the intense situation. The Kuchas having to really deal with it firsthand. And you get the Ogakors going, boy, I I hope they're okay. I, I really don't want anything bad to happen which is nice stuff but you know they're completely uh, separated from this whole incident at kucha and then they just have like the perfect perfect way to end the whole episode you know it's always tricky when survivor can't end on a tribal council because that's just uh-huh. the format of the show but i think they do a really good job with how they end the end the episode yeah absolutely it was the the prayer circle right they all sit around we're going to win this for Mike. We're going to stick together. And it like kind of fades out onto the sunset or something like that. I'm like, that is the best ending to a Survivor episode I've ever seen. There has never been a moment in Survivor history where the audience was kind of galvanized behind one particular tribe as they were behind Kucha right then and all because of that speech, that, that prayer circle. Eating the fish that Mike caught. Absolutely. By the way, I got a, a, a quick tangent here. <clears throat> to point out more evidence of how much Jerry was hated, this this will shock a lot of people, but there's that whole episode of, you know, Mike falls in the fire, he gets hurt, they send notice over to Ogakor, and Jerry's the one who reads the tree mail to the rest of the tribe. Or she <laughs> says, like, oh no. Oh my God, you should have seen the message boards that night saying, 
Jerry was so fake in the way she faked sympathy for Mike, that bitch. Oh my God, she was fucking fake. Like, that was the, everyone was, half the messages were, oh my God, I hope Mike's okay. The other half was, fuck Jerry for pretending to be sad. <laughs> this is she, how much she, she really could She really couldn't win, huh? She couldn't win. I mean, she was legitimately sad and people were <laughs> giving her shit. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because she comes back and she's like, we got mail. And, you know, T, you can hear Tina, like, you know, woohooing that they got tree mail and everyone's excited. What is it? And Jerry's like, no, no, this is, this is strange. You know, and yeah. she, and she kind of drops the bomb like someone has been medevaced away from the camp and, you know, the, they get really somber and stuff like that. And the fact that everyone's like, ah, that bitch, she's got an angle, doesn't she? Exactly. It was horrible. <laughs> it's like poor Jerry. So no. anyway, yeah, it was. A, and then they didn't announce right away if Mike was OK. This was this was the thing I always thought was kind of cruel. They just gave Mike his final words like, well, you know, it was a great adventure, blah, blah, blah. And they just fade out. And they don't say, oh, by the way, Mike is in the hospital now and he's recovering. They didn't give you that. It's like he could have died for all we know. Like it was just speculation on the Internet for like a week. It was nuts. Yeah. And because of that, it was a big deal. The readers asked what the uh, what the what America was like after Mike falling in the fire. And the answer was, holy crap, is he OK? Yeah. And it was from everywhere. Everywhere. That was the thing. There was no update. There was not, I mean, there wasn't as big an internet presence as there is now, so you couldn't just click on a link and see what he was up to. Like, no one knew. They talked about it on shows. I mean, the whole next day was a buzz of, oh my God, what, and not just, is he okay? And everyone kind of came to the assumption that he's probably okay because uh-huh. they filmed it and they are showing it. And if he died from that, that's not very cool. <laughs> yeah. But, but even then they're like, oh my, d- does he, does he have use of his hands? Is he, does he now, you know, need to have some sort of special prosthesis? I mean, the, the speculations were wild. Yeah, that's the thing. Even though Mike was kind of treated like a goober by the editing, I mean, if you watch, they kind of treat him like a joke. Like, people legitimately loved him all of a sudden. They're like, wait, poor Mike. We love Mike. And, like, there was a lot of retroactive. We liked him all along, which no one really did on Cooch. I think they kind of treated him like a, like a mascot. But it was, it was a really jarring character shift that everyone, audience and players, were suddenly very concerned about Mike as a human being. And it was really the first time you kind of had that crossover in Survivor. There's, oh. We could say the, say the same variant, variants of the same thing over and over again. But, yeah, I mean, it was a big, shocking TV moment. And I don't think a lot of people had ever seen anything like it on TV before. This was way before people were medevac from Survivor. I think he was the only medevac of like the first 11 seasons or something like that. Yeah, Bruce is the next one. Uh, 11 seasons, or I guess, well, yeah, 11 or 10 seasons later. Yeah, five really? years later. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. It was <laughs> can't poop Bruce is the next medevac. Yeah. Well, okay, you can, you can might be able to count Austin in there because I know technically he might have been a medevac in a sense because his his body was shutting down. But it, yeah. his body was a temple. It was Mario. a temple. Yeah, it was a temple. It was a temple, real bad. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, yeah, that was the deal with Mike. It was a huge moment, and I cannot believe they did not pick him in any all-star season after that. He should have been the biggest no-brainer in season eight in like fans versus favorites. At some point, it's the most compelling thing of the first, you know, dozen seasons. Like what, what would have happened if Mike had stayed in the game? This is, we'll, we'll talk about this later, maybe in the next podcast. I don't know if we have time, but what would have happened if Mike had stayed in the game? This is a huge question in survivor history. 
what if games are hard? I don't like the what if games of what if this person had stayed or what if this person hadn't turned on their alliance, yeah. especially with the game being so complicated now. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone plays the what if this happened and this and this and this. But I think the really easy what if game is what happened if Mike hadn't fallen into the fire because that is a just a completely left field variable it is. that happened. And it completely turned that game on its head because we don't have an immunity challenge. We don't know if Kucha is going to go 6-4 into the merge Uh uh, like they wanted or if we go 5-5. And if they go 5-5, who's voted out from Kucha? Because it's Mm -hmm. probably not Mike. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's... I think we should save this for the next podcast because we can talk a lot about this and we're kind of running close on time here. But yeah, this is a big deal and that's the thing. That's... We end episode 6 of Survivor with this great speech, you know... uh, I think I forget who's the last person to speak. It might be Jeff who says we're going to chew him up and we're going to spit him out because that's what Mike would have wanted. We're going to win it for him, and you know they fade out. And like, what an amazing episode! I mean, again, not to take anything away from Mike's suffering, but man, it's you just do not get six better episodes than the six in a row at the start of Australia. It's just that's about Survivor at its peak, in my opinion. Just epic. I mean, you can't you can't recreate what they did there. No, nothing. And they couldn't have planned for that. They couldn't have planned for Mike falling in the fire. And to their credit, they made lemonade out of lemons. They had this horrible situation that could have torpedoed their entire franchise. And it became one of the most epic episodes ever. And, you know, you can go into all these debates about should Survivor exploits people's suffering. But, you know, it happened. You got to do something with it. And they turned it into a really good episode and just about as appropriate and sensitive as it could have been. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And, 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 yeah, the first six episodes are we we're we're pretty much in agreement that the worst of the six episodes was possibly episode three where Mad Dog goes home. It could be. I mean, I could say something great about every one of the episodes. Three's right. got Tina as a badass, so right. that's the one where she becomes a badass. So if 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 that's our worst of these first six, that is a heck of a first. That's a that's a murderer's row of of episodes, uh, culminating in episode six with Mike in the fire. Uh, yeah. Watch the episode. It's it's a fantastic bit of television, and not just for the Mike and the Fire sequence, which is, you know, compelling in and of itself, and just the way it was handled, and the in the interviews, and just the way Kucha reacts, the way Ogakor reacts. But as we talked about earlier, the challenge leading up to it, all of the stuff going on, and Jerry and the tomatoes, and everything going on. It's a really good episode from start to finish. In fact, I would say the episodes kind of get progressively better from one to six. I would say. Two's better than one, three's better than two, then four gets great, five is good, and six is the best of them all. I mean, that's the thing. People say, well, you know, only the first part of Australia is good. The second part is kind of lackluster, which I would agree with in a sense. But, like, the first six is so good. It's like it's not an even playing field. <laughs> right, and and maybe that's a letdown because the first ep- six episodes were so good. But mm-hmm. when we get to the merge and beyond, I'm, I have some things to say because I, I think the season's good all the way through. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it needs a lot of defending and... What's going to happen, I think, we kind of are allotting two hours, just for those of you listening at home, we're, we're kind of allotting two hours for these podcasts. We're just about at the two-hour mark here. So we're kind of going to wrap it up in a second here, and we're going to do the next episode just on the second half of Australia. But yeah, Jay's absolutely right. I think the second half of Australia really needs a lot of defending. And we're going to defend kind of some stuff you might not think needs defending, but there's, there's certain things that are going to come up that it might surprise you. Oh, boy. Nick Brown? Oh, Nick will be all over. I mean, again, it's Nick Brown. You can't think about Australia without thinking Nick Brown. I'm kidding, by the way. Are you? Are you really? (laughs) My son, Nick, might have something to say about that. Well, you know, he needs to talk about his namesake. Do you have a little Nick Shrine, just like uh, 
Paul may have an amber shrine. I told him to make one, but he's very lazy, so he didn't do it. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> apropos. That's yes. great. So uh, I, was I was gonna dad, but uh, I was lazy. I was lazy real bad. <laughs> See, you know, Jay's a uh, talented comedian when he can make me laugh on my own joke. Okay, um, I was kind of planning to end this uh, podcast with a bunch of user questions. We got about 50 of them, and I'm not kidding. But uh, I think what we're going to do is kind of wrap up this podcast, just go through the first six episodes of Australia. Since this is such a big season, we're going to have two podcasts about Australia. So the next one will be episodes 7 through 13 and all the user questions, and then just me gushing about how Tina is awesome for 30 minutes. So that should be a lot of fun. Paul, bring, bring earplugs for that. <laughs> You got to give me this one, so I'll let you gush about Amanda later. It's okay. I I I have nothing against Tina. Tina's great. So excellent. That's what I like to hear. You're allowed to be on the podcast. Okay. Good. <laughs> so uh, I guess we're going to kind of wrap up. You guys have anything more you want to say here before we sign off for this one? I Jay. don't think so. <laughs> um, Paul's not the greatest color man in the world for nothing. <laughs> not, ooh, major league joke. <laughs> That's right. I like it. Um, <laughs> I don't have a. I think I think we've covered most things. Uh, I like the momentum going in there. Um, watch again the the little bit like you can see it. They they tried to cut out everyone talking about uh, all you know. I'm going to be the next Rudy or I'm going to be the next Tina. But they do allude to the first season a little bit. It slipped through the cracks like them going, oh, we're going to have to eat live grubs or uh, like Paul pointed out with the. Uh, uh, with Mad Dog's confessional toward Cal with the uh, desert and the drink of water. It's in there. Just watch for it. Um, you know, they, they do slip it in every once in a while. I think that's kind of fun and neat to look back on. And before I sign off, I would just like to leave with a uh, reader email from a, a reader named Cody Ross who wrote, Mario, if the yub crocodile doesn't get a shout out, then the whole podcast is flawed. And so I think that is an excellent way to leave it with out of all the love and all the things i love about australia you got to start with the yubbing crocodile and the opening credits and that one's for you cody because i do not want you to think this podcast was flawed <laughs> nope. and i yeah i think we're gonna uh fade out here and just because of cody's email we're gonna leave you with the opening credits of survivor of the australian outback and we'll end you on the yub so until the next podcast this is mario lanza this is jay fisher paul asslison and we will see you next time on the Survivor Historians. Thanks for listening. <laughs>